This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to season two of the Human Things Podcast 2.0. All right, really, welcome to season two. This is really exciting. Season one was a bit of an experiment that we were running, and this experiment has succeeded. And we are committed as an organization. The feedback that we have gotten has been almost all positive, a little negative. I'll go into that in just a sec. Apparently, well, we don't have to go into it that much. Apparently, there was a couple of people that were not fond of my Stan Lee conversation. That's fine. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. So we're going to that we, we don't ever have to revisit that again. That's fine. So what we're going to do is build from last year and move into Now, one of the things I want to do as we go forward is I want to begin, we do begin with some, some less focused ramblings. And that's, that has been a, a source of actually interesting conversations with people. I have received word from people who have told me that they are now committed to watching Streets of Fire because I talk about that movie as much as I do. I'm very excited about that. Uh, I don't know why that makes me happy, but the the family of Streets of Fire lovers is about to grow, hopefully, as people will you know, embrace that idea. I have heard a lot about the song Rich Girl from Hall & Oates. That has been something. I actually heard somebody who contacted, sent me a message and said, don't talk about songs that early because I turned your podcast off to listen to Rich Girl, and then I had to reengage your podcast later. But as long as you love Hall & Oates and you recognize my point, and if, I have had people try to make me defend my love for all of those. Like, look, my, I have a very limited take on them. I said they had four really good songs. I don't know why that's particularly controversial. Uh, I did want to, one of the things I played around with was an idea that I wanted to do a, a March Madness kind of bracket or a playoff bracket of, of bands and three song sets. So like, let's get a list. First of all, to set the brackets, who has the best three song set? And, and, and so we find a list. So I need this. If you're, if you're listening and you want to help out, please message us or respond and let us know. So what we need is we start to put together a list of bands, but, but here's the thing. I think when you start to look at like the big bands, you think, well, of course, Beatles like the Beatles or Nirvana, the Rolling Stones or all these bands that have been around forever. And they're going to three song sets, change it, man. Cause it's only three songs. You might find that somebody else, like, you know, Led Zeppelin or somebody has a three song set. That's just killer that we didn't expect to have. So I do want to have, at some point this season, a three-song set playoff. Well, some way where we can sort through. So that's something we've got to spitball through. We've got to brainstorm and figure out how we're going to run that. Uh, and so we're going to continue on with Human Things 2.0 as a project. And we're working right now with Human Things 2.0 Season 1 to pull off material from there and to give it to you in shorter formats, uh, different segments, more condensed things. That's going to be the project. We are committed to this for another year at least. It has been funded. The, the donors have spoken and they have given us what we need to go forward. This one, I want to get to the interview. Very, we had a long interview and it's a very good interview with Seth Dreyer, the vice president of Created Equal. It's a very valuable conversation about how to talk to people, especially in emotionally charged situations. Seth, to me, is one of the, the greatest people on earth at going into places and, and having conversations with people who, who sometimes not just passionately, but, uh, you know, uh, pretty demonstrably disagree with them or, or uh, they, they, they're very passionate. They're disagree with them, angry with his views. And he's, he's able to manage those conversations. So I wanted him to come on for three things. Tell us the three things that we need to know about how to have conversations with people when we're on the hot seat. That's coming up next. Uh, so we have a limited lead in today 
it's graduation time, which is great. It's that time of year when uh, everybody's graduating and you're seeing the post and graduation. I like graduation time. Every year I get invited to do one or two commencement speeches. And I, I actually enjoy it. Um, I enjoy that. Years ago when I gave my first commencement speech, it was very stressful leading up to it as I was trying to figure out something deeply wise and profound to say. And then I started to think, what would I say to my kids when the time comes? What would be what I wanted to say to them? And so I, I crafted a commencement speech in some format or another is what I give every year. Every year, my son asks me if I've changed it. Every year, I tell him the same thing. I don't have anything to change it to. I, I basically came up with the, the best advice I could, I could come up with personally that I had to give people. This is the best I got. I'm not holding out anything beyond what I tell these audiences. If, if, it's, if it's not fulfilling enough for you or not good enough, then you just brought the wrong speaker. But these are, and so what I wanted to do is in brief talk about what I do in the commencement speech, not as a commercial for commencement speeches, but because I genuinely think it's the best advice I have. Uh, and, and I love commencement season because people are setting off on a new part of their life. Their life is beginning. They're commencing, they're setting forth. Uh, and, and it was an important change for my life. I think my life began when I left high school uh, in earnest. And I don't mean that in a way, I'm not one of those people that looks back in high school and say it was the greatest time of my life. I also don't look back on it and regret it. I don't have any hostility towards it. It just, it was a period where Jay was lost, but I was lost in the protection of my parents. And that keeps you from having to make decisions, that protection, that bubble. And so the, the places where Jay would just not last in this world weren't really truly exposed as, I, as the man that I was until I was out from all of that and in college. And so that is, so as I think back on it, uh, I'll, I'll give you just a, you know, in brief, uh, the, the points that I think are important for commencement as, as we are living in the culture right now, as people are beginning their lives in earnest, as it was for me to begin my life in earnest. Uh, I always start, I always start with one of my favorite lines from any movie. It's the beginning of gladiator as they're preparing to go into battle. And uh, Maximus looks at his men and he says, what you do in life echoes in eternity. And it's something as we are sending, he's getting ready to send people into a bloody, horrifying battle against the Germanic tribes at the very edge of the Roman Empire. They're trying to secure the end of war. And what he's telling them is, as you go into this battle, be aware that what you do there echoes in eternity. That you can't be afraid that you will lose or fail or die on this battlefield because the ramifications for what we do will continue on for all of eternity. And for as Christians, obviously I believe that as well, that for Christians, what we do in life echoes for eternity differently than Maximus understood it on that day of the battlefield. But that as we approach our life, we have to keep that in mind. There's more than just the moment in front of me. There is a whole world that's impacted by the decisions that I make and what I do will echo far beyond this moment. And, and so reflecting on that, as we get into how to, navigate life, I think is a great place to start. Here are the, the, the four things though, that I talk to people about. One is that it's all right to, it is right to mark this occasion to celebrate. Uh, every day is a new opportunity and a new challenge is number two. Number three is bet on yourself and don't be afraid to lose. And number four is the people that you meet matter more than anything else in this world. Uh, very briefly, why I say it is right to mark the occasion. When I was a kid, I thought my graduation ceremony was stupid. I didn't understand it. Actually, it's interesting to me that as I've gotten older, many years now removed from that, that moment has gotten more important. And not just because, oddly enough, I still have weird nightmares and I'm back in high school. I don't know 
if anybody else does that, but I do. And it's not, I'm in high school and young. It's me at this age in high school. And like, there's still one more class you haven't taken, which is absolutely ridiculous. Because I don't know where the classroom is. And I see all these young people and I feel awkward enough being an old guy in, in high school. And so when I wake up in the morning, the fact that I can remember my graduation ceremony is very important to me because I did finish high school. I remember that. It did happen. Uh, and so, but marking the occasion is an important thing. Uh, I, I, I look at Joshua 4 when they cross uh, the Jordan. And after the people of Israel have crossed the Jordan, God says, take one person from each tribe, go find 12 stones in the middle, they, they put them up on the shoulders, carry them out. We're going to put a pile over here so that they can remember where those stones came from because you'll forget because five seconds after every victory in your life, you'll forget the victory because of the pressure and the way that the world is. You will feel like go, go to first Kings uh, chapter 18. You have Elijah's victory. What did we start in chapter 19? Elijah runs. He just defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And then a bad report from the king's wife, Jezebel, and suddenly he runs out of fear and hides. We forget our victories in this world. We forget them. So we have to mark them. We have to celebrate them. We have to build little altars so that we'll see those rocks and say, where did those rocks came from? come from? They came from when that river was dried up so that we could cross it because God did something in our life. And I need to remember that because the road's going to get hard later. So that, that's one of the things that is right to celebrate and to take a moment to celebrate. But another thing that's important about that celebration, and, and uh, I've had not only just my own kids, but other kids in the area, I've, I've had the, the pleasure of coaching in different sports, particularly more in lacrosse over the last several years. And I take everything I do very seriously. It's just the way that I am. And I'm not a serious guy all the time, but if I find something's worth my time to do it, I get intensely into it. And so it's not enough just to coach. I go and talk to other coaches and research other coaches and do everything that I can find out about how great coaches do their job so that I can do the best that I can to help people become better at what they want to be good at. And one of the things that I found was interesting was when you talk to college coaches, particularly non-revenue producing sports, let's set aside football and basketball right now. They generate millions of dollars for their school uh, and then stuff like, you know, gymnastics is a different thing. Uh, when you talk to, but I don't know in this particular, but non-revenue producing sports, sports that lose money for the school or most would ever break even. They're not making any money off of the, these sports being financed by football and basketball. Talk to a coach about what they want, male or female. And you, you hear the same things often come up. Obviously, grades are very important to them because in non-revenue producing sports, they only have a handful of, 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 of scholarships to hand out. And so they need academic scholarships to supplement that as well. So they can get people into school and, and encourage them to come to their program. But one of the other things that I think is fascinating that you hear a lot is encouragement. We need encouragers. We're looking for people that cheer for their teammates. We're looking for people that celebrate everything on the field. You scored a goal, celebrate. Got a ground ball and a turnover. We want to hear you cheering. We want to hear you cheering for your teammates when they do something and you weren't involved in the play. We want to see you having a positive attitude when you're losing, maybe even badly. We don't want to see people sulking. We don't want to see people dropping their head. We don't want to see people throwing their gear. We don't want to see people mad or angry that things didn't work out. They said, we are looking for people that celebrate. And one coach explained why. They said, because the process is filled with failure. The process of trying to be great is filled with failure. We lose and we lose and we lose. 
And if you can't be happy about the victories along the way, it will destroy you. So I need people in my locker room as a part of my team, as a part of this project, as a part of this endeavor that will celebrate when good things happen. Because it's so hard to produce those good things. I need somebody that's going to be happy with little victories. Lift their... So what if we lost by five goals? If your teammate scores, you cheer for them because something good happened. I want somebody happy and excited and encouraging that celebrates small victories because oftentimes you may be in a situation where the small victories are all that we have for a little while while we chase those bigger victories. And so with the accumulation of small failures here and there, will be soul crushing if you can't enjoy when something good happens. I, I think it was Abby Wambach that spoke to the U.S. women's lacrosse national team and told them, celebrate everything. Soccer player Abby Wambach, I think at the time she was all-time leading scorer for Team USA. She said, celebrate everything. Celebrate everything. Every little victory on the field, celebrate it. Jo- take joy in the process and in the game. And that's the same thing I said to mark these occasions. Mark them because we'll forget them and mark them because life is filled with enough failures that we ought to be free to celebrate and enjoy the successes. Uh, every day is a new opportunity and a new challenge. That was important to me. Uh, I have lived my philosophy, my life by one philosophy as a Christian that it takes one good day to turn all this around. If you get into a run of bad days, I live in expectation of that good day. That good day may be coming, it may not, but I live in expectation that it's coming. So it takes one day to turn all this stuff. Every day is a new challenge to my son who worked really, really hard to elevate himself to a position where he'd be taken seriously by places like the Naval Academy and who the process of getting into the Naval Academy was, was he got all the way through the interviews. He got all the way to the point where he was uh, being considered. And there was a, a, an issue beyond his control that, that moved in that made it impossible for him to get there that year. But one of the things he and I used to talk about is he lived this very disciplined and structured life was you have to go through every day realizing it doesn't matter how good I've been to this point, I can still mess this up. You have to live your life understanding that yesterday's victories are not today's victories. They're yesterday's victories. So we have to work for today's victories as well and work for tomorrow's victories. That, that no matter what your past record of success tells you, you can still mess this thing up if we get sloppy, if we get undisciplined, if we just stop caring. And then more importantly for me, if we stop pursuing our own virtue, pursuing our own virtue, protecting our virtue, taking it serious as an enterprise every single day. One of the things I tell my kids is 99% of staying out of trouble is staying out of the places where trouble happens. I mean, most of it is just being disciplined about where you allow yourself to be. Just don't be there. They're like, how can I go to this place and not get into trouble? I'm like, why are you playing that game at all? If you know that there's trouble there, just don't go there. You may miss out. Let's say Levy, such as life. There we go. So one of them is be careful because even if you have a past of success, you can mess this up. And even if you reach levels of success, there's a documentary. And I was speaking recently and I couldn't remember the word documentary, JD. I was on stage and I couldn't remember that. It took me, and I took like 10 seconds fumbling around trying to remember the word documentary. I never remembered it. I can't even remember what stupid word I plugged in for a documentary or something like movie or something. I don't even know what it was. because I, just, I had to just move on. I can't stop the whole talk because I can't remember the word documentary. But there's a little mini documentary about Belichick and Saban on, uh, it used to be HBO Max, but now it's just called Max. I think now it's been rebranded as Max. And in there, they talk about 
Getting to the top is not the difficult part. Staying at the top is the difficult part. Convincing people that worked so hard that they got to the top, that that's when the work starts and that it requires more work once you've succeeded to stay there than it did to get there, that's hard. That's the difficult thing. So for the people with a track record of success, I say tomorrow's a new challenge. Your past does not ensure success in the future. You have to keep working. The grind just does not end. And for the people who've messed up like I did, I was terrible high school student, terrible just human being for the most part when I was younger. And I realized that I could change. That I did I wasn't required to be the person that everybody thought I was. Even when a lot of people had given up, I think most people had given up on me. Most people thought Jay was a failed project. Most people I would say believed that. I would go close to saying close to all. Almost everybody I knew probably believed on some level or another that Jay Watts was a failed life project. But one day I decided to change that. I just don't want to be that guy anymore. And it was through the grace of God and it was through commitment to Christ and it was through a lot of different things. And, uh, but I never let the fact that I was living a life intended to kill me, stop me from being willing to change it when the data changed. And, and I decided that I was seeing the world differently. We weren't on a course that couldn't be corrected. And so it was time to correct it. As a matter of fact, I would say one of the things I like to tell people is that changing course is a big deal. I think it was in, um, it may have been in Blink, Malcolm Gladwell's book. One of the books I remember reading one time where they said, you have like a 90 second window in emergency situations. Like something happens. One of the reasons that people die oftentimes in disasters or bad places is because, or, or in emergency situations is because there's a, there's a belief that the way that the world was a moment ago will continue on. And when that changes and new dangerous things happen, they don't change what they're doing quickly enough. They don't recognize that something awful has happened and they have to change what they're doing immediately in order to survive this. And so I encourage people that the, one of the best things that I think that I've done in my life is be really good at recognizing when everything changed and not worrying about it not being yesterday anymore. Today is a new thing and we have to evaluate what we're doing. A, a quick story on that, my daughter as a type one diabetic, the day she was diagnosed as an eight year old, we were in the emergency room and the doctors kept coming in. They were giving her shots and injections and IVs and all of this stuff to try to help her body recover from the damage that had been done to it all the way up to the point that she was diagnosed. And understandably, my eight year old daughter was not enjoying it, shying away, looking nervous about everything that was happening. And in one of the better moments I've had parenting, I looked at her and held her hand and I said, you know, yesterday, was Sunday. Sunday, you were not a diabetic, as far as we knew. I mean, you were, but we didn't know that. Sunday, you could be afraid of needles, and you could be squeamish about all the medical stuff that's going on around you. But today is Monday, and today we found out you're a type 1 diabetic. And today, the world has changed, and you can't afford any longer to be afraid of needles. It's just going to be your life is a life of injections and needles and pump sets and all of this stuff. And doctors, we can't afford to approach Monday like we did Sunday. The world changed overnight. And now we have to get on board with this change. And she, like a trooper, an eight-year-old, nodded her head and never looked back. And she's managed her diabetes like a champ ever since then. Never sitting around wishing that she wasn't a diabetic. I'm sure she does. I know she does when she and I talk. Nobody likes to have to deal with, but she doesn't let that hurt her. She doesn't let that encourage her to make bad decisions. 
least not over a long haul. Nobody's perfect, but she's been remarkable at how she handled herself. So every day is a new opportunity and a new challenge and a, new, and a chance to change. Uh, my fourth thing that, or my third thing that I say is to bet on yourself, bet on yourself, be willing to take risk on yourself, believing that if you commit yourself to something, you can accomplish it. I've heard many years ago, Colin Coward was talking about, he's a sports talk show. That's where I got this wisdom from, not the Bible, not some great spiritual advisor. Many, many years ago when he was younger and not yet the big uh, sports talk celebrity he is, I guess now, uh, he had. I remember hearing him when I was driving, and he said, successful people aren't afraid to fail because they're not afraid to start over. It's not that successful people don't believe they'll fail. They know every risk they take that failure is a part of it. And it may end up in a total failure. But he said, but people like that have no fear of starting over. They, it's not that they're just not afraid of failure. They know they can start over. They believe in themselves that they can navigate starting over and rebuilding, even if whatever they've risked fails. And I took that to heart, man. And I believe it's like, okay, if I want to be a success in this world, I have to believe in myself that I can start over. And I, in my life, I had already testified to that before hearing him say that, but I evaluated it. So I've never been afraid of that. And it, it goes all the way. When we started Merely Human Ministries, my wife and I set our kids down. And my wife said, I want everybody in the room, set the kids down. I said, I don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going. We believe this is where God's leading us. We have no idea what the next couple of years are going to be like. We have to raise money to support this ministry. We don't have the money yet there. The money that we're going to raise is what's going to keep us alive. It's not there yet. She said, but here's the thing. We need the three of you, our three kids that were in the room with us that day, we need the three of you to understand we've done this before. He and I, we've rebuilt before. We started over before. We've done this. We're not afraid of this. So you shouldn't be either. It's going to work. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to work. My wife is the hero of our family. She set them all down and said, we are not afraid of starting over. So we're going to risk that we believe that God is calling us out, that this is something that he wants done. Bet on yourself. And then one of the things I tell my kids and I've told a lot of other people, when you bet on yourself, and I've shared this with many people that I care about, and I, I encourage you to share this with somebody in your life that you love as well, that you want to see succeed. I tell them, as long as I have a roof over my head, food in my refrigerator and in my, on my shelves and in my pantry, there is only so far you can fall in this world. There is only so far you can go. And I've told this to friends of mine who are struggling. Don't be afraid that you're going to be out on the streets. I have a house. You may not want to live in my den, but I will buy a futon and stick you in my den for a while rather than have you on the streets. You will not be forgotten in this world. You can only fall so far as long as I have a place to catch you. And I'm willing to catch you. So go do whatever it is you're afraid to do and know that I'm here for you if it doesn't work out. All of my kids, I've had friends, I've had family, I've, people that I've shared this with. I'm like, go, do. I don't have the greatest house in the world. To me it is, but maybe not to the rest of the world, but it is a house. And I don't have all the nicest things in the world, but I will keep you off the streets and I'll have a bathroom and food for you and you will be able to rebound and rebuild your life if that's what it comes to. Go out and take a chance, bet on yourself, and know that there are people here that will catch you if you fall. And then the final thing I tell them 
is that the people matter more than anything. The people that we meet matter more than anything else in our lives. We get caught up in wanting to be successful by the way that the world measures it. And this is not a call to not pursue greatness or success. This is to recognize why we pursue those things and how we define them. One of the most successful people I know runs his own business, has a lot of money, but he runs it as a servant. When you ask him why he does what he does, he would tell you, honestly, when I asked him many years ago, do you love your job? No, it's all right. Do you love what you do? No, it's okay, but I'm really good at it. And I'm not really good at a lot of other things. But he said, but here's the thing. That guy over there is good at being a pastor. That person over there is good at being a missionary. You're good at what you do. And by me going out and being good at what I do, I can make sure he can do what he wants to, he, God wants him to do. I can make sure that guy gets to do what God wants him to do. And I can make sure that you get to do what God wants you to do. I provide the funds by being a success. This is a CEO, but he has a servant's heart. He pursued wealth, not so that he could live a wealthy, opulent lifestyle, but so that he could give extravagantly and generously. He understands it's not the money. The money serves the people. And the people are the most important thing in his life. And he lives by that standard. A king can have a servant's heart. We can serve our fellow man. And we can't get blinded by the importance of the position. I mean, go all the way even back to the Good Samaritan, right? The two people that left him on the side of the road were important people with important jobs to do, tasks that they needed to get to. They couldn't be bothered to help that guy on the side of the road. But Jesus says the Samaritan was his friend because he found him and he took care of him. He's the one that treated him as he ought to have been treated. He acted as a human being ought to act toward other human beings. The other people that we meet in our life matter more than the things that we're pursuing. And it may be that whatever it is we think we're on the way to do in life that is so important is less important to the kingdom of heaven than that person that God has put in front of us that's struggling today. And so we have to make sure that we take the responsibility to not lose sight of the people that God has put in our life because they're the reason we're here. And this is a world today that is very, I'm reading a book and I'm going to talk about this more in a later episode about narcissism. I think I've said that like a million times, by the way, but I got this book on narcissism. It's a great book. I want to be able to talk about it when we have more time to talk about it. But what I want to talk about when we talk about narcissism feeds into some of the, the rate of obesity in the United States, as we've seen it grown. And if you, you know, my kids went to a water park and sent me videos from it the other day. And I was like, wow, <laughs> it is, it is tough out there, man. Uh, and, but as we see obesity growing in our culture, that's a visible thing that we can see. People aren't in the shape that they ought to be in. They're not taking care of themselves. They're eating poorly. They're not exercising. They're not managing their stress. They're not getting enough rest. There's all of these things that are contributing to it. Terrible diets. And obesity has just grown and grown to the point that many people say we're the most obese nation that has ever existed on the planet Earth. At the exact same rate, during the exact same time, narcissism has also expanded in the United States and grown. People obsessed with themselves and the belief that they're better than they are, more important than they are, no better than everybody else around them. People who understand the entire world of a lens through self-admiration. This isn't healthy self-esteem. 
This is somebody who thinks about themselves and understands the entire world through that lens. As a friend of mine who was going through the worst thing he's ever been through in his life, had another friend write him a letter, someone who loved dearly, who he loved dearly. And he said, I'm in the middle of the worst thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life. And this person whom I love, who is, who is a narcissist to their core, sends me a letter telling them how the things that I'm going through are negatively affecting them and how hard all of this is on them. He's like, I am barely hanging on. I get this letter from somebody who details in every way how the things that I'm going through are so terrible for them, basically asking me to sympathize for them about how awful what I'm going through is. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about narcissism. This idea that we understand every event that happens in the world around us through our own experience, through our own view of ourselves. And that's all we do in this world is pursue ourselves. It's the exact opposite of what God has called us to be. People will endure for eternity. They matter more. The greatest thing I ever saw my wife do was one day when she got a call from somebody who at the time she wasn't as crazy close to as she is now. And they were having a terrible day. And I remember my wife on the phone with this person. I mean, terrible, terrible. Whatever you think I mean when I say terrible, it is so much worse than what you're thinking. And as she's going through it, I heard my wife say, would you like for me to just not go to work today and come over and just sit with you all day? And the person at the other end of the phone must have said yes, because that's exactly what my wife did. She did not go into work that day. She went and sat with that person. And now that person has been a lifetime friend of our family, far closer now than we were before that moment happened. We have gotten so much from that person being a part of our lives, enjoyed so much about having them be a part of our family's life and her family's life, all of these things. But they all began at a moment where my wife realized the person in front of me is more important than what other plans I had today. And maybe, just maybe, what God needs for me today is to cancel the plans and value the person. I do. I learned this many years ago. I was at a, a fundraiser. That's how I'll end on before we go introduce Seth and bring him in. Many years ago, I was at a fundraising event, Association of Fundraising Professionals. So it was a guy there who was talking about plan giving. He gets up and he does this exercise. I wish I could remember his name and give him proper credit. I didn't come up with this. He did. It was great, though. So everybody raise your hand if you know the first and last name of your parents. Everyone in the room raises their hand. Yeah, J.D. raises his hand, right? And he says, well, keep your hands up if you know the first and last name of every one of your grandparents. Most of the hands went down. But still, a healthy chunk of hands stayed up, right? Mine stay up. Keep your hand up if you remember the first and last name of every one of your great-grandparents. All the hands in the room went down like one or two, right? And he stopped there. I've actually done this experiment a lot, and I'll go to the next and say, what about your great-great-grandparents? And nobody's ever had their hand up after that. I usually have in a room full of 100 people, maybe one or two, that know the name, first and last name of every one of their great-grandparents. And so as all the hands go down, and there's like one or two, he's look around the room. That's how fast the world forgets you. Even your relatives a couple of generations removed, won't remember your name. But the people that surround you now, you can impact their lives in lasting ways. They won't know us. Generations from now, they won't know us. 
It's the people around us today that will love us and benefit from our activity and commitment to their lives. We can change the world that we live in and just know, and the Bible affirms this, right? It tells us. It is life is a vapor. It's short. It's nothing. And you think you can accumulate the, the, all this wealth and you cannot accumulate enough wealth to last year. We're, we're told that it's going to, the next generation will spend it. It'll just be gone. You will spend your life accumulating wealth and you're going to give it to rotten kids who are going to spend it immediately after you're gone. There is no security in your legacy. There is only loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's all we have in this world. So I tell them, those are my pieces of advice that I give you. All the advice that I have is the best of advice I can give anybody. Number one, mark and celebrate the occasions. Number two, every day is an opportunity and a new challenge. Number three, bet on yourself and don't be afraid to lose. And number four, it's the people that you meet that matter the most. They're the reason that God brought you here. All right, let's get on to Seth Dreyer. Let's bring him on now. I would like to welcome now to the show, Seth Dreyer, the vice president of Created Equal. The reason that I've invited Seth, which I've already spoken a little bit about on the show prior to this, is because more than anyone I know, he spends his time out there having conversations with people uh, and oftentimes in front of, a, I mean, almost all the time, I think in front of abortion victim imagery. So you're, people talk to me all the time, what is it like to talk to hostile audiences? And I said, well, you know, one of the things I tell them, Seth, is that I don't talk to hostile audiences as much as you probably think I do. For one thing, I'm, I'm not seen as a controversial guy, so I don't get people worked up as much as some other people do. Uh, now, I do have people get angry in particular parts of the country where audiences can tend to be more hostile than others. But for the most part, even when they're angry with me, I get along pretty well with everybody. So I don't have, I do have some very specific instances of hostile audiences, but it's not my bread and butter. I'm fine. I like it. I actually enjoy the experience. But when we're talking about an expert on hostile audiences, that's you, my friend. And that's why I wanted to have you on because I do think, and, and before we've started filming today, I, I perused um, in Instagram accounts of pro-life organizations to see what kind of, of, of dialogue was going on, yours and others, to see how the, the level of dialogue. From my point of view, the level of dialogue has gone downhill. Uh, the, 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 the level of sophistication and the way people are talking about this is going down and the emotion is going up. And so I wanted to have, to me, a genuine expert. And it's not just, here's the other reason I wanted you. Because it's not just that you are, in my mind, an expert on talking to people in this environment, but you're also, to me, one of the nicest people I've ever seen in front of a group of people like this. And you you managed to, and I know your organization has very strict rules about how you interact with people as far as keeping a peace, peaceful continence and, and, and handling it in a Christ-like way, but you embody that more than anybody else I watch online. And so it was important to me to have you come on and to give you the opportunity to tell us the three things that you think are most important uh, in, a, in an area where I think, and you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, where the, the sophistication of the dialogue is going down, but the emotion is going up, but it has never been more important to have the courage to have these conversations with people, to stand in front of them and to sort of drive a conversation, a dialogue about this issue in our country. So here are three things. You are now in control. 
Well, yay and amen, Jade. First of all, this is a privilege to be here. I mean, I've known you, I think we met in person the first time years ago at a Students for Life of America event where you were yeah. speaking and I was speaking after you. So it's a privilege to be here with you. I love what your ministry is doing, um, but you are exactly right. I mean, the level of dialogue is plummeting. We even saw years ago at Created Equal, our main mission at first was college campuses. Then we started doing high school outreach and the high schools were a little bit different. And they're still different, but the high school students we found their level of indoctrination was very low compared to the college students. Yeah. They, high schoolers were much more open, more willing, open-minded, I would say, to divergent ideas from the ones they already hold. Now even that's changing a lot as the high schoolers are they're on TikTok and they're having their worldviews formed by these very poor soundbite-directed ideas that is making it harder to reach them. So I think a lot about you know great missionaries I look up to and I think about the people groups they went to minister to and not all of them were easy. Um, and so I think that what God has called Create Equal to and me specifically um, is this group of American college students, right? Which is not always the easiest group to love no. because they have all the confidence but the lack of knowledge. It's like they have zeal without knowledge as yeah. Paul talked about yeah. the unbelieving Jews, right? All the zeal there, but not the knowledge. So, um, but it doesn't make it impossible. And that's the thing. Some people are so cynical, think it's so dark out there. What's the point? And I, I hear that, but change still happens, right? Yes. Um, so even like when I've had like University of Cincinnati a uh, year and a half ago, there with we had maybe, I don't know, three or 400 kids surrounding me as I was doing open microphone where I have a microphone, a coworker of mine has another microphone, students can ask questions, I respond back and forth. You had the people like standing behind me with Bluetooth speakers playing flatulence noises or all kinds of really offensive things. But then you had the others in the crowd who were like after came and said, wow, I had no clue. And they're still listening, right? And so it's true. There are the loud people who are making a lot of noise and cannot process dialogue, but there still are open-minded ones. And I'm confident we can find them. That's, that's our job, right? Yeah. And so that's what we must do. And that's what you're doing. It's what I'm doing, different spheres of influence, but we're trying to help people think appropriately and rightly. And when I was in college, one of the things that I, when it comes up, you know, you, we have limited time to make our kids, particularly different than you. I think you have, the great thing about what you do is you have more time. To, yeah. to make your case. Now, it, it, I'm, I tend to have more of a platform uh, when I go to places, and so time is much more limited. But every once in a while, I do have the opportunity to share when people ask why I do this. And one of there's multiple reasons. Obviously, the first and foremost is that I believe that abortion is a great injustice, uh, and I believe that all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect. And if I'm going to spend the rest of my life fighting for one thing, loving your neighbor as yourself seems as good as anything else I could ever give my time to the limited amount of time that I have on earth. But another thing is the, the way that we do things matters to me because when I used to work with other organizations that would do things like they would put a free speech board and they would allow college students just to express themselves any way they wanted on that free speech board, right? And when I would talk to those groups, when I go in and I would work with them, I say, I want you to find the most profane, ugly thing you can find on this free speech board. And that's who I was when I was in university. Mm. That's, the, that's the guy that I was. And, and, and I, I put a high value on the idea that it's better for us to live in accordance with the truth than a lie uh, in the sense that not even, I don't think, you know, I believe the things that I believe because they pay off in some sense and that's why you should believe them. But I just, I just believe that for all human beings, no matter what the consequences are in our lives, it is better to live in accordance with the truth. And I'm happier and better and more fulfilled as living in accordance with the truth, even though it meant some tough things for how I live my life. And so I, I am passionate about that idea, what you just talked about, 
Yes, it's dark. Yes, they're awful sometimes. Yes, you can you can be in the middle of, of just horribly profane individuals. But I was one of them. And mm. I am grateful that there were Christians or people that were willing to talk to me to help me to change my life. And so I am eternally grateful for people that are doing what you're doing, going onto college campuses and caring enough to help those people to live more accordance with the truth. Now, now let's get to your three things. Sure. Talk yeah. to me about what uh, key to dialoguing with this. Let's do it. So, I mean, I think that the, one of these things I wanted to share is just that categories matter. And I think this mm. will uh, make sense to you. It makes sense to a lot of your listeners who are familiar with the arguments, right? When I walk into a college campus and I ask students, what do you think about abortion? And I'll talk in a moment later about the images you mentioned that we use on campus. But I just ask them, what do you think about it? The response is often, the responses show me they don't understand the categories at play here, that we have really two principal categories to answer the question, is abortion right or wrong? At, at minimum, you need science and you, you need worldview. And so it's pretty clear why, though. I think that whether the preborn human, human, whether the embryo is a human is a matter of science, right? People will ask me at the time, like, is this just because you're a Christian, you believe the baby's a human? And I said, well, you know, my religion is irrelevant to the scientific question of whether that is a human being. Yeah. My religion is important, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But first of all, let's talk about the mere scientific question. And a lot of people who are pro-choice like to jump over this, right? They don't want to deal with yeah. the scientific matter, which is odd because we're told that we are the anti-scientific ones. But I find the anti-scientific bias among pro-choice people is really quite alarming, right? So yeah. first of all, I think just clarifying for people, there's a scientific component when does human life begin? What is the embryo? Is a scientific question demanding a scientific answer. But while I find a lot of pro-choice people kind of like to leap over that and just get to the moral question of autonomy or things like that, or like what we should do, they skip the scientific question. Sometimes I find pro-life people skip over the, um, they focus mostly on the scientific question. I've seen yes. even t-shirts saying it's all about science, 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 science. Okay, science matters, but Science cannot inform us of what we should do with the baby if we know she's a human, right? Is she equal to us? Is it right or wrong to kill her? Oughtness, rightness, wrongness are not categories that belong to science, right? Yeah. That deals with morality, philosophy, or generally just worldview, right? So I think the first thing, if you want to have effective dialogue with people, before you can answer any question is clarifying, well, what are the questions we're asking, right? We are asking scientific questions and worldview questions. It's so when I'm talking to a student, one of the first things I have to do is kind of step back and say, Let's pause before we answer this and talk about what two categories are at play here. And to kind of illustrate that, I do have a clip that I think we could play for your audience that might be instructive to just hear. This is the University of Toledo when I was talking to a student there recently, and she was asking, like, are you here just for your religion? And I try to kind of clarify for her these categories at play. Are you, is this based purely for you? But you're is a man. Is this based off of a um, strictly, like, religious belief? What do you mean by that? Like, uh, out here. There, there are two questions here. So what is abortion is a scientific question. You're asking what happens in abortion. And we know the answer is you intentionally kill an innocent, you kill a human. That's what happens scientifically in abortion. We know that the fetus is a human being. There's nothing religious about that at all, that abortion is killing a human. Now, my religious views inform me to believe in human equality. That's how I can look at people with different skin colors and say we're equal because skin color doesn't change our value. So my religion informs equality. My religion does not inform what abortion is because abortion is killing innocent humans no matter what you think about that. Okay. So this is interesting. Um, I mean, that's one conversation, right, from University yeah. of Toledo. Uh, I find this often, I'm sure you do as well, that people want to write off our entire case by just saying, hey, it's just religious, right? 
And our answer could be no, or our answer I think should be, well, hang on a second, right? Religion does play a role here. Now, here's the interesting part. You're religious, I'm religious, regardless whether you're Christian or not, we all have a worldview. So I prefer to use that category instead of just religion, because I think it's a little more broadly speaking, we're talking about worldview. Mm -hmm. But I think we have to go in the right order first. And this is old Greg Coco, Scott Klusendorf style, like what are we talking about, human or not, right? So the whole, everyone knows the daddy, can I kill it uh, scenario. But my point is that the scientific question comes first, what are we dealing with? But then we have to deal with worldview. Whether you are atheist, Christian, Buddhist, it does not matter. You have to have some answer to what should we do with these humans? How should we treat them? So I think that when I want to dialogue with people, before I can get people to move to the right answers, I have to make sure we're asking the right questions. And we understand that questions belong to categories, scientific and worldview, and both must be answered to come to a conclusion on this debate. Yeah. And you, first of all, I love in the video that you, you mentioned Greg Kokel and Scott Klusendorf, but you use Greg Kokel's tactical approach, at least you know, what do you mean by that being the first question yeah. that we ask, which is, I, I tell people all the time, there are very few books that I tell when I'm in front of audiences and they say, what should I read? And I said, there's very few books that I recommend universally that I say everybody should read, but, but tactics is one of those because learning how to navigate a conversation, even if you don't agree with Greg's beliefs, even if you're not a Christian, understanding the demands that claims put on particular people within a conversation and the way to navigate a conversation. When I train audiences, I will tell them that some of my greatest rhetorical victories have come when I didn't make a point at all. When all mm. I did was ask the right questions and allow them to say what they think out loud. Oftentimes hearing ourselves say wrong things has an amazing impact on how we process information. Or as we try to say things, one of the, I remember C.S. Lewis many, many years ago reading it for the first time where he talked about that the better you understand something, the better you are at explaining it to people in a particularly very simple way. So if you're not capable of explaining something in very simple terms to someone who doesn't understand what you're talking about, you probably don't understand it yourself. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that, by the way, as I've tried to prep for new talks in the past where I will have... I'll actually have like a test audience if I can, or I'll get people together and I say, I want to run material through. I'll teach it as a class at church. Or I'll find some avenue where I can put it in front of people. Or when I'm writing an article or going through that process, I just keep talking to as many people as I can about whatever I'm writing about so I can hear how they're processing what I'm saying. And, but I'm also hearing how I'm processing what I'm saying and whether I get it or not. And so by asking that question, what do you mean by that? You really give them the opportunity to say what they believe. And that is such a hugely important part of the dialogue. Uh, and before I turn it back to you, one other thing I think that you've hit on that is just right, because you said the other side makes the mistake of skipping over the question, what is it scientifically? A lot, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they just assume certain aspects of this. But you are, you are absolutely right that our side oftentimes forgets the, for me, when I would call the philosophical burden of demonstrating what it means to have value as a human being. They say, the science proves it's human, so abortion is wrong. That's not actually yeah. true. No. I mean, that's not the way this works. What the science does is what you just told that young, that young woman. What the science has done is demonstrate that abortion is the destruction of a human life. That's what science has done. But that, that destruction is unjust or wrong, that's not a scientific question. And in order for us to, to, to dialogue on that, we have to, what you said is... Category mistakes are so important to avoid. I mean, yeah. they, they infect every conversation, not just in this, but all conversations and being able to keep them clear 
and and be able to say, look, we have to have we have two a two front war we have to fight here. Number one, I have to demonstrate that as a categorical statement that the abortion is the destruction of a human life is just true, biologically true. Yeah. And we have to accept that for this conversation to have any meaning at all. For us to be able to move forward, we have to accept that that's the truth. It is the, it is the destruction of a human life. And you even corrected yourself in that video, which is great, because you first <laughs> said innocent life. Yeah. And then you were like, no, 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 wait, wait. Innocent is, a, is that's, that doesn't belong in this category. That's got to go over there. So right. first we got to get through that idea of we can't say it's innocent because innocence is a value judgment. That's not where we are right now. What we're talking yep. about is what is biologically present, a, a whole human life, a whole distinct human life that's biologically present. And abortion is the, the art of destroying it before it's born. So it's exactly that, right. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go well, ahead. It's, just, it's so, it's so hard to be disciplined, right, Jay? Like to yeah. ourselves stay in the right category. So if we're having a hard time and we're skilled at it, of course the public will too. But so I think that's why it's just like narrating a debate, right? Who wins the debate? The one that could step back and say, here's what's going on, right? Same with the conversation. You've got to narrate for people. Let's, here's the question we're asking. We've got to stick to the right category and make sure we are disciplined in this. That's really hard to do, but it helps move things forward. And narrating, you say that, I want to make sure the audience understands, because I've mentioned that a lot as well. Narrating, and I got that from Scott, actually. Scott's the one that made me. Same. Yeah, so uh, the idea of there's a point in the conversation when, when we are starting to accumulate a lot of information in the conversation where we stop and say, let's cover what ground has been covered up to this point to make sure that every side is being understood as clearly as possible. And let's narrate back what's being discussed at this. So we're not allowing ourselves to one of the things when you train people and you, then all of a sudden you put them in role play, you notice that they just get rabbit trailed. I mean, they just go crazy going down rabbit trails. Like, and like you said, we have to be very, very disciplined. This is what we're talking about now. Once they ask questions that take us off that, I said, we'll wait, put a pen in that. We will get to that in a second. But let's finish what we're talking about right now. Let's stay on this category right here before we move on to anything else. And, and narrating it is our way of saying, let's cover what we've said so far. And that actually, that, that particular tactic has been hugely beneficial to me in helping people to see where they haven't thought things through very well. Because when I say it, say it back to them, what they've said to me, and they hear it coming out of my mouth, you can see them wrestling with it. I don't, I don't like what you're saying I'm saying, but it appears to be accurate. Uh, as a, one guy said to me one time, I was like, I, 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 I got to think about it. Because when you say it that way, I realize I, I have a lot of opinions, but not a lot of arguments. And so I need to think things over. So. <laughs> yeah, such a good point. I just think that this is so critical. And um, I had, I was at, I think, Youngstown State University just watching another video preparing to put on my Instagram profile. And it's this STEM major. And she's just saying like, you know, I'm a STEM major. I just don't consider that a human. You may believe it's, you may believe it is, you may not. That's fine. I just said again, well, hang on a sec. You're a STEM major, right? So you understand that it's not just your beliefs that exist. It's also reality. Truth is when your ideas match reality, right? So you may believe the club of cells. I may say it's a human that's what's what's more important is which of our ideas actually matches the real world. And again, for that, we're talking about simple scientific truths. There are moral truths too. We have to get to them in at the right time. And yeah. uh, it's just hard to stay on, stay on that. A whole distinct human life. I mean, when yeah. the, those are the categories I started at first. Hold, Scott used to always do a whole distinct and human, a uh, whole distinct and living, whole distinct and living, but I have like whole distinct human life. That's what we're discussing, a whole distinct yeah. human life. And that's what's going to be destroyed 
in the process of abortion. And category mistakes don't, it's not just like you're, we've covered actually a couple in there because we're talking about scientific and morality or science and philosophy. But also when we talk about, and Scott has talked about this for years as well, and Greg Kokel has as well, understanding the difference between preference claims and objective Mm. moral claims, right? Or even objective science claims, which you were just talking about when somebody says, I don't think it's a human, that doesn't really matter, does it? And and, and one of the places where I remember having this conversation in a school, a high school, uh, and, and somebody was saying, I don't think it's a human, and that we just disagree on that. It's like, okay, do you get to decide whether you think this is a table or not? This yeah. item in front of me, right? This this thing in front of me right here, do you get to decide whether you this is a lectern or not? What Do you get to have an opinion, or is it just what it is? External to you and I. There are things that that it makes sense to say and to, to speak in those terms. But when we're trying to determine, determine scientifically what the unborn are or the preborn or what the embryo or the fetus or what our offspring that has been born yet is, however you want to talk about it, that exists external to us just like this table. So when we're talking about it, we have to talk in objective terms. We have to evaluate it by something that is not ultimately impacted by my emotional state towards it, how I feel about it, what I think about it is ultimately irrelevant to the question of what ultimately it is. When we're talking about the science of embryology, it is something external and separate from all of those other things. And the, the discipline that we're on in that first section, when we talk about categories, that first section, we have to focus on what does science tell us? Not what we'd like to answer because that, and that's bad science, right? I mean, that's one of the things that we have to tell. it's bad science to let what you want to be the truth infect how you think about things. That's the whole point of the scientific process is to weed out that side of bias that's going to affect how we evaluate things. We have to have something that's object, a process that we can go through that we can come to an objective answer. And the scientific answer is clear. It's a whole distinct human life. I think it's 100% right. And I think that I mean, we have, we understand that with almost every other topic, right? If we're trying to determine, well, is this a microphone, right? I can call it an automobile. I can't get inside and drive it around, right? So I recognize there's external reality Um, or when it's even trying to find life on Mars or whatever it may be, right? We understand that we are engaging in scientific inquiry. And it's just so interesting when it comes to these certain areas, like whether the preborn embryo is a human being or not, we don't allow ourselves to actually follow that scientific process, which that's a broader issue of why we are that way. I know we're talking right now just simply about how to stick in categories, why we do that, why we don't do that. It's a bigger issue. And I think that the, the benefit though, is that it still rings true, right? When you tell someone this is this microphone, I know that those listening can't see it, but you, I have a microphone here, right? If when I say it's not an automobile, we all recognize, yeah, that's obviously true, right? So we recognize my ideas, external reality. Truth is not what I think. Truth is when what I think matches the real world. That's all we're trying to do, remind people of that in a really simple issue of whether the embryo is a human. It's pretty easy, but it's only becomes difficult when it becomes politically complicated. So that's, that's the but first thing. But it always is politically complicated. That's the problem, right? I mean, and that's, that is something yeah. that when we talk about having to be disciplined and work in category and why I love what you do and the way you do it so, uh, so much is that the, the, the grace and mercy by which you proceed in conversations to me, I can, even though I'm usually watching through your like body cam, so I can't see you. Yeah. But I can, which I know, by the way, let's, let's be clear for, for audiences that you wear those body cams for your protection in these conversations, right? That it's been, if, if I'm not mistaken, 
from talking to people that work in this area, it's been your experience that with the camera on, people control themselves better, right? Totally, totally, okay. yeah. Okay, so you're wearing a I mean, body yeah, we, cam. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, we had a, we still have incidents occur of violence toward our property, uh, but it's definitely ticked downward since we started wearing the body cams. You're right. So the body cams keep people honest. I mean, they, or, mm -hmm. or to some degree, they, yeah. when people know they're being witnessed, they control themselves a little bit more. Uh, and so, but I see, I don't get to see you. I get to see the body cam image and I get to see you flipping your literature a lot, which cracks me up because yeah. you do that while you're talking all the time. But, but still the, the grace and mercy by which you're trying to proceed to this conversation is so important because as, as that's why I just want to make that point before we move on. Even though when we have to stay on the cut, the subject of science, it, it can become very easy for us to forget that this is still an emotionally charged conversation. We, we want to talk about science yeah. as if science will somehow remove the emotion from it. Science will hopefully give us an objective platform from where we can launch the conversation into a reasonable worldview or philosophical dis discussion. But the person who's denying science at that point is not denying it because they have been convinced of some scientific truth. There was something internal right. going on with them that they're wrestling with at that moment. And depending on how passionately they hold to that view of themselves, it can become very difficult just to get them to acknowledge certain scientific truths. I, Steve Jacobs, who did the, really the, you know, the great research on getting uh, oh, yeah. academic biologists to, to affirm when life begins, he categorizes as mammalian life, which obviously extends to us because we're a species of the mammalian, but, but um, I think he only got 97% of academic yeah. biologists to affirm that life mm -hmm. begins. What, what the other three, I mean, and he even said that it was, <laughs> what were they thinking? Clear. What were they thinking? Right. I mean, I've talked to, to Maureen Kondik before and she was like, I don't know what plan B is, right. It, it begins <laughs> here and there is nothing else to discuss. There is no other place to go. So even there, 3% of academic biologists just refuse to acknowledge that life begins at conception or fertilization uh, because of the, their motivations to not allow that to be, because all of those academic biologists understood what he was going to use that information for. So that is right. an important thing, even though we're, we focus on the category and we have to keep it as, as gracious and respectful as we can, because even in accepting what should be the most basic fundamental truth of this conversation, that it's a whole distinct human life that's being destroyed. We're still coming up against their emotions. So well said. It just reminds me of, this is a totally different topic, but William Lane oh. Craig, the way he t speaks on the yep. problem of pain, right? That you have yep. the intellectual objection and the emotional objection, right? So we cannot be cold hearted. I mean, so clearly if I'm on college campuses talking to real people, this is not me just sitting and thinking about things. I'm talking to real people and I have to recognize Ben Shapiro's right. Facts don't care about feelings, but people do, right? So yep. I need to navigate not merely the intellectual issue, but the emotional baggage that everyone brings to it, whether it's having an abortion, um, knowing someone who did, advocating for, or merely holding the position abortion is okay. And then you come face to face with the reality actually kills children. And you, this is, there's a lot going on in your heart and your head at that point. So we have to navigate all of that. That's why it is clearly an art. So we're, yes, I say categories matter, but I'm not saying it's a, I mean, one plus one equals two. You're going to easily make someone change their mind. It's not all that easy, but our job is to think in the opportunity I have, how can I move someone a little bit toward truth, right? Toward what mm. you were talking about earlier, toward the external reality, to recognizing that what they held before was maybe wrong. 
I might not make someone a fully pro-life person, but if all I do is bring them to recognize that truth is real, truth exists, and that they need to reevaluate their ideas, God may use someone else to bring them closer. I'm just removing objections, bringing them closer to truth as close as I can. And that's why I'm never discouraged when I leave a campus and I don't have anyone that day say, yeah, I changed my mind. That does happen. We still have people tell us that. But even when I don't, I know I'm moving people a little bit toward the right way. And that's helpful. Um, it's not always a great success, but it is help being part of the larger project of moving the cultural needle toward the truth that babies matter, just like we do. Yeah, and, and what you just said tracks with Greg Kokel's put a stone in their shoe, right? Yeah. make Unsettle them, make them uncomfortable in their view. They may not jump on, but I, I'm actually highly suspicious of people who change their minds very quickly, right? I, I, yeah. I, I, I know it. I wouldn't do that. that yeah, I would never and never did. Never did I come into a conversation where I was passionate about something and I was immediately changed my mind. It's just not me. But uh, the idea of unsettling them is important. So uh, giving, making them rethink all of that. And that's that, that, that clarity of categories is, is, is the, the greatest place to start because you show so much discipline in when you're talking to people and that discipline is necessary because I, I think you mentioned, and again, I'm not, I would not say anything ugly about any other people, because uh, I'm just not like that. But there is an element right now where there's a bluntness that is valued in a soundbite information world, mm-hmm. uh, where we can make our case to the fan, to our people by shutting down a conversation. You, you see that in all the links, right? Utterly destroys yeah. woke student. Uh, progressive is owned. Yeah. And, and there's nothing helpful about that if the idea of what we're trying to accomplish is take those people who are living outside of the truth and to move them into a life that lives in accordance with the truth. Uh, we're not winning arguments. We're trying to win people to our yep. side, to the side of truth, to the right. And and um, so, yeah, there's just something I, I those categories help us. They really do help us. They help both of us. They help us to keep from getting bogged down into what both of us are bringing to this conversation. And I, I, before I give it, maybe we can move on to number two. I, the idea that you could spend all day out there and see nothing like in the sense of, I, I had no conversation that I felt like was a win all day. That must be a spiritual, a spiritually exhausting experience to rally yourself from. Right. Because I know for me, it's easier for the most part. I mean, I do Q&As at every talk that I give. But when I get up in front of an audience, I've had bad audiences. But there's something about when you have a bad audience, it's like they have an energy, like a collective energy. And when when it happens, you can just, I can sense it about, about a third of the way through a talk if I've got just a bad audience. And I tend to become actually on purpose, tactically speaking, I switch to much more confrontational style at that point. Mm. If they're not going to get along, then they're going to get, an earful, right? Yeah. So if, if their goal is that they're, because the, they don't get off, they don't get to not have to have this conversation. If they want to have it in a lovely, fun, uh, collegial, winsome way, then we can do that. But if they just decide they want to be jerks today, then we can do that too. And and so it will change to a slightly more confrontational tone because we're going to get there one way or another. Uh, but, but for me, it's like collectively a thousand people didn't like me and I don't care. For you... It's like one-on-one conversations mm-hmm. all day. Uh, so if you wouldn't just, just before we move on to two, if yeah. you could just speak to that for one second. 
Yeah, you're right. It does take a toll. I mean, I, I think that sometimes you have the crazy pro-abortion students who just try to offend us and they'll say, th bring signs saying that makes me feel hungry looking at dead babies and stuff like that. Ugh. I just think, you know, I've heard almost everything. You're not going to shock me, but they want to shock me. But um, I, I think also part of the reason I'm not often, I'll tell you a moment, one time I got, I, I, I got personally kind of offended, but I don't often is because I realize these people don't know me. They don't know Seth yep. Dreyer. They know what I stand for. They know the pro-life movement. They, they hate God, whatever it may be like, and they hate what I represent. They don't know me. So it's not the same as my neighbor or friend not liking me. That would be a lot harder, but still I have to be very honest. And that is that I am not perfect in this. Just like with the categories, we must be disciplined. I have to be disciplined to keep myself in line. And years ago, before I started pro-life ministry full-time, I was on uh, staff at a church in Indiana, and my pastor, Wendell Brain, told me, he was a former, formerly involved in the rescue movement, so a long time been in the battle for, for babies. And he said, you know, one day you're going to cross the line. When you go into a mission like this, you'll probably cross the line you shouldn't cross. Here's what matters identifying it coming back to the right side. So I've kept that in my mind for a long time. And, and early on, I was in Florida at the Florida State University in Tallahassee with Stephanie Gray Connors and John Van Mare and a lot of people that uh, maybe your audience would know back when we were all kind of kids in the movement. And it was one of the hardest days I ever had. I was still new, but to this day, one of the hardest audience I had where Stephanie was doing open microphone then. I was on the outside with the microphone taking questions. She did the answers because I was newer. And um, that audience of people throwing throwing coat hangers toward her. Later mm -hmm. on, when I was um, talking to students, they were some guy came with just like um, an accordion playing loud music. And when students would ask questions, he'd be quiet. When I would start speaking, play loud music. And I was this this crowd was you know hundreds full strong, and I was at my limit. And I was I at one point kind of stepped outside my head and listened to myself and thought, Seth, you're still saying true things. But it is not said lovingly. I was using truth even to be biting. And I thought, I'm crossing a line, right? So I, I thought, I can't do this. I really cannot love these people. They're unlovable, and I can't love them. So I walked away from the display. I sat like at a little hill where I could watch and look, and I just prayed. And God reminded me of something pretty big, and that's that you, Seth, were unlovable when I loved you. And I was like, okay, thank you, God. And so I had to sit there for a while and pray, though, and go back. And when I went back, I had... One of the conversations that to this day, just uh, I never forget, and I'll maybe share that conversation later. My point for now is that we have to be aware that because this is an art, because we're talking to people, trying to move people, it's not about, as you said, owning people. It's about loving people. And you probably will at some point not love well. What matters is identifying and course correcting to love as our Savior loved us. Outstanding. So with that, I can jump into number two then, I think, because I'm sorry I'm waxing long here. But number two, oh, I think, kind it. of leads a little bit into this, and that is that so because it's not just an intellectual debate, um, it's not just emotional, it's all of that. Also, we don't have the benefit, as you said a moment ago, I'm on campus, I can have long conversations, but also there's a problem today, and that is that our attention spans have tanked. Like in 2015, Microsoft had a, a news item or some kind of release saying that our attention spans are allegedly worse than a goldfish now. I don't know if that's really true, but a goldfish can go for nine seconds and we can go for eight seconds before we lose someone. So I think we have a problem that is people may not get the categories. Also, they may not want to stand around and listen. Yeah. I think your audience knows well our syllogism. It is wrong to intentionally kill innocent humans. Abortion does that. It intentionally kills innocent humans. Therefore, abortion is wrong. That takes maybe three to four seconds to say that. That doesn't leave a whole lot of time to really support it. So it's hard to get someone to stop and pause and want to listen. Still happens. People are still open-minded. But my problem on campus is how do I grab someone in that first few seconds to make them want to stop and listen? Mm. Once they stop, they might hang with me. But how do I get them to stop? 
And we have found that the most effective way to get people in a few moments to stop thinking, have a desire to reconsider their deeply held beliefs is using visuals. Words take time. Words are slow to kind of work their way through your mind and trickle down to your heart and your motivations. But images, as Stephanie Gray Connors has said, images burn their way into your heart in a way that words often fail to do. And so that is what brings us to why when I'm on a campus, I'm not alone. I have these signs, pictures showing babies killed by abortion because I know that, well, it would take many words for me to get someone to stop and think. When they see that picture, pretty quickly it communicates something clear to them. A, abortion is not the innocuous thing they thought it was. That is a human being there. That human being was killed. I mean, I still have people sometimes say, abortion doesn't kill a human. I just point and look at a picture of a dismembered child and say, hang on a second. We had a growing fetus here who was dismembered. Help me understand how you're saying a human was not killed by this process. And I've done outreaches without the pictures before, and it's really, really hard. Even though we know Photoshop is a thing and people can fake, do deep fakes, we get that. When I have nothing visual to show, I have nothing at all that is, I mean, I know my words are appealing to objective truth, but they quickly write that off. But when I show a picture, it communicates something objective, again, outside of them that's harder for them to dismiss and write off. And I, I think we can go a lot deeper into this, questions of why I think victim images are justifiable to use and effective to use. But I think something that people who maybe hear about Create Equal might misunderstand is that without these visuals, it's hard to get people to stop and listen. Yeah. If I have an event where they come dropped in, they're going to stop, they're going to listen to me. But when I'm, they're walker by, I have a few seconds to grab them. And this does that. And it's, it's, it's different. It's one of the things that I don't think people understand about the differences between audiences. And I, I talk about this a lot with others that, you know, when, if you invite me to come and speak at, uh, like I do banquets or, um, and I, I mentioned earlier on this show, commencement speeches for high schools, I, I, I do both of those. But here's the thing. If I go to a banquet or I go to a commencement, they were going to be there anyway. So yeah. the audience isn't there to hear me. So I have a, it's a different thing. To, it's a different audience that I'm speaking to, as opposed to if you take me to a campus or, and I'm an invited speaker and you have an event where people come, that audience has self-selected to be there to listen to me. And so there's a difference in every audience's dynamic. Your audience is oftentimes just students walking on campus from one place to another. You put yourself in as best a high volume traffic area as you can, but I have been to college campuses and watched how they move and how they operate. And you're right. If you don't have something that will immediately catch your attention, it's, it's hard to start to get them to stop for a second and to have a conversation with you. And I will say another, going back to another point you make that that's interesting to me. I, I, Scott and I have for years discussed it. Um, I am not like, I don't have the same relationship to the abortion victim imagery that he does. And so I'm not as hardcore about always, always having it there. Although I have it on our website and I use it and I think it's important. There's an important place in it. I will tell you where it's just most powerful for me going back to some of the things that on some of what you just said, I can remember there were times where I was speaking, there was a particular school, I think in Memphis, it was a very large Catholic school and the audience was unruly and they were rude and so we were like, run it. I mean, I was, I was talking and I got to the point and it was like, run it. And so we run the video and a one minute video showing abortion victims, uh, victims of abortion and they're dead silent. And that, and that's happened at multiple different places that I've gone where audiences just, there was nothing I was going to be able to say rhetorically that could accomplish what those images did. That it just 
changed the nature of the room. You can be yeah. mad at, about them. You can be mad at me for showing them, whatever it is, but, but you're no longer being flippant and irritating anymore. And in, in that, I can remember being on university campuses where we showed it during talks because it brings the reality. We talked about that first piece, the category. Is it a human life? It is a human life. And then the next question when, we, when you stand in front of that victim imagery is saying, why are we allowed to do that to human life? Yeah. Because that's what we're doing. And so it does. I mean, it, it, there's a power to the images that our words, however good a speaker you are, you cannot compete with what they can get done just like that when somebody sees them and has to wrestle with what they're looking at. So true. And I, I love, um, again, I, I already referred to Stephanie Gray Connors, but I love the way she communicates on this, that, um, you know, you and I, we, we matter, Jay. I mean, in the sense that we are whistleblowers decrying injustice, but we are not the ones who are being victimized here. That's right. The victims are the babies, right? And they have a right to have their stories told exactly as they happened. That's what Stephanie says. And I think that this is communicated so well. Your listeners, I'm sure, knowing Scott, are familiar with Emmett Till's story, so I won't belabor it, but the movie came out last year, Till, showing Mamie really focusing on her and not so much the brutality, but focusing on her decision to show Emmett afterward. And I think that when we watched that vi that movie, our, our staff went last year as a team to watch it. I'm always struck by on other issues, especially looking backwards on issues we've kind of come to a, a better consensus on. I'm not a racist denier, but, I, but my point is that generally speaking, we know that legal racism should not be legally sanctioned, right? Yeah. So we understand that today. We look backwards and say, absolutely, Emmett's face should be shown. No question, because what happened to him was brutal, gross, and the country should see it and reckon with it. I think we have such, or confidence, well, like years ago, I remember it was the chemical attack in Syria, which when I saw those pictures of the kids suffocated by the chemical warfare, I was just struck and couldn't hardly sleep that mm -hmm. night. And CNN had like doctors on show saying they've never seen anything like this. And CNN and their reporting said the doctors themselves couldn't were wrestling with. It was so hard for them to see that they have said this is why the images must be shown across the world so we can reckon with what is happening here. We yep. all would come. We all understand that in other issues, we must show the pictures. But I do think that when it comes to abortion, there's one. There's one element of this I think that's helpful to talk about, though. One objection, that is people who've had abortions. And I've, yeah. I honestly would tell you, Jay, when I started doing this work, um, oh, whatever, like in 2010, I guess, I moved out to Columbus, Ohio to join Mark Harrington in this. I thought, okay, my mission is going to be trying to help people reckon with the reality of abortion, show pictures, walk them through the answers to bring them to the conclusion abortion is wrong. When it comes to those who've had abortions, I thought, I love them, but that's not my ministry because who was, they're not going to confess to me. I mean, I'm a man by these pictures of dead babies. I was 100% dead wrong because a lot of people, I think when they meet me, they don't know me. It's not hard for them to, to confess to people they know in their lives. But this stranger, there's a lot of relief in confessing to a stranger who already believes abortion is wrong clearly by being by these pictures. It brings these feelings to the surface. They want to vent to someone. Betty, a woman I met at Western Kentucky University, told me when I met her to that week, 20 years before she had an abortion, she had never told her anyone, including her daughter, who was 22, two years older than the baby that she killed. She confessed to me first, first person in her life. That's not unusual. A lot of people want to vent their feelings. And when they do, the pictures, I understand pictures are hard to see. But my consistent experience is that those who've had abortions find relief in it because they're in a world right now saying, shout your abortion story, love it, be happy about it. They don't feel good about it, right? No, and these pictures no. give meaning to their feeling and they can vent them in a way that finally releases them if they then can be pointed to the truth of the gospel where they can find healing. And that's our privilege to share with them bad news and the good news. There was a, a friend of mine up in Illinois who I spoke with a couple of times and she talked about how 
she used to work at a Planned Parenthood, and um, when she struggled with her past abortion, her experience with abortion, and she kept going to counselors who kept saying, you were right. It was your every right. You had every right to do it. It was a good thing. And it wasn't until she, she re-embraced her Catholicism and she went to a Catholic counselor and she said she was sitting in the room and she discussed her abortion and the counselor said, well, what you did was wrong. So we'll start there. And she said that was the first moment of freedom for her, right? It's like, okay, mm. now, now everything I have felt makes sense. I've had people telling yeah. me that it was a right and there was nothing wrong with it and it was just guilt for no reason, all this. And then for somebody to just say, well, what you do is wrong, so let's start building from here. She said, I was released from all of that, out of out from that moment when I realized that what I had done was wrong. Uh, and, and you know, Greg Cunningham, uh, who did Center for, Bio, does Center for Biological Reform, he said something many years ago that I thought was so insightful as to the imagery of victim, because he goes back to experience that I had. First, I'll say what he said first. I, I'm going to be paraphrasing him. But he said, you don't learn anything about the Holocaust by looking at a picture of how of a, a happy, healthy Jewish family. Yeah. He's like, right, if, if I show you the picture before it happened, that doesn't tell you about the evil of the Holocaust. It, it does speak to the humanity of the Jewish family, but yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't tell you or, or show us what happened. And I can remember, and I don't know, I don't know, have never met. I know they exist, but I have never in my sphere had a Holocaust denier, and I've never had people around me who don't acknowledge the evil of the Holocaust. It was one of the worst things that human beings have ever done to each other. And so you grow up in that environment. I had never struggled morally with that question. Mm -mm. But one day I came home from university, from school, and I go into my our den and I turn on the TV and there's a documentary that's being released on PBS and it's footage from World War II. And they get to the footage of when they first entered into the first death camps that they found. And it's just raw footage. Mm. And, and they just are one thing after another as they move the camera around and show. And I remember at that moment becoming so overwhelmed with the knowledge of the evil of the Holocaust in a way that had never happened before. It was so, it was so awful. I wanted to pull my teeth out. I didn't know how to react to it. Right. It was, it was, it was something new to me. And so even going into it, if I'd made the decision that I understood that it was wrong, but I didn't, and Greg, speaking of what Greg Cunningham says there, I never understood the, the level of wrong we're talking about. The same thing with Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. I could have understood that racism was wrong, but what Emmett Till did was give us a visual to the, the evil of racial hatred, that it destroyed yeah. this young man. It, it, did, it wasn't hurt feelings. It was murder. And it wasn't just murder, it was torture. It was profound and deep hatred for no reason whatsoever. And so when we start to talk about what imagery does, when we're going back to Stephanie saying they deserve to be seen because we're not the victims of this. They are the victims of this. And there has to be a reckoning for what we're doing. And that's one of the, 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 the most powerful thing about the images when I'm in front of audiences, even on a platform, and I've shown those pictures, it, it changes the tenor of the conversation because I can point to that picture up behind it and say, freeze it, hold it. Yeah. Why are we allowed to do that right there? That's what you have to explain, right? This isn't coffee talk. This is happening all the time, all over the world. Why is it okay? 
Exactly right. And I think that the problem is for so many people, this is a political debate, an intellectual debate. But for these yeah. babies, it's their real lives. For their mothers and fathers who are shackling themselves with chains of guilt that will last for years, this is their life too, right? And yeah. uh, just echoing your friend's experience, I, I was speaking at a banquet in Scranton, Pennsylvania a couple years ago, and um, I showed the victim video in, the, um, in, the, um, in my speech. And of course, as always, I preface it by by saying you can look away if you like to, you can opt out of this. And I shared the gospel because it's, again, it's not just bad news because the screen, the pictures are very bad news, but yes. the good news of the gospel. And I reminded people that, you know, this might have been part of your story, what you see on the screen, but where you're going matters more than where you've been and who you are today matters more than what you've done. If you believe in Jesus, your sins are not overlooked by God. They're actually legitimately punished elsewhere. Christ became sin in your place. You are truly forgiven. And then I played the video. And I left that day um, going home. It was, it was a great event, but I got a phone call to drive home from a woman named Andrea. She said, I was very angry. 20 years before I had an abortion, I had never been to a single pro-life event till that day. Sitting there hearing what you were going to play, I was frustrated with you thinking, why are you doing this? And she sat wrestling with, do I look, do I not look? And she just said, at the last minute, I decided to look up. I don't know why. But as I watched it, it was like a deep wound was finally lanced. And all the pus, all the crud came out to the surface. And she said, finally, I understood for the first time, I understood what the cross is for, seeing that. And I feel relief. And now she's running a deeper still ministry in, in Pennsylvania, helping other parents come to find healing after mm -hmm. abortion. And the images alone didn't do that. God used the images to bring her to the truth of the gospel or deeper understanding of it. But I think so long as we, so long as we, avoid using these scary images. We not only deny babies the freedom that could come by people reckoning with abortion, I do think we're preventing people from having the real healing opportunities. Um, but I guess coming back really quickly also to just the power of this and why it matters. I do have one more clip we can play uh, for, this is a student I met um, who you see, just, you'll hear, I guess most people will be listening to this. You can hear him wrestling with this, having not seen the pictures. And then finally, how his mind was being moved as he saw the pictures of the babies. Yeah, so have you seen abortion before? No, I haven't. So what do you think about it before you saw this? Um, I never really had a uh, genuine opinion on it. I just yeah. felt like a, um, I feel like if they felt like they had to do it and... So now that you see it, now what do you think about abortion? I think it's horrible. Yeah. Oh, it's messed up. Totally. When you take a baby like this growing in the womb and you tear it to pieces like that, that can't be right, right? Like for you, it'd be wrong for anyone to come here and kill you. You're an innocent human. And they are too that is younger than you. Yeah. So would you say abortion's wrong? Yeah, that, that that seems pretty messed up. If they're alive and well in some form, shape or form, it would be kind of messed up to take their life away. So does seeing this change your thinking about abortion? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it does. I uh, never looked at it this way. So this um, definitely changed my opinion on it a bit. Awesome. I'm Seth, what's your name? So he's still moving, developing his thoughts, right? Cause that's going back to our initial point or earlier, we talked about how the goal is not to, hey, change your mind, you're pro-life now, good, you're good to go, right? We're trying to actually move them truly and that's a hard process. But you can see that just, I didn't do a whole lot in that. I love this with our conversations where I'm not really doing a whole lot of work here, right? The babies testify for themselves. Greg Cunningham says, when abortion is seen, abortion protests itself and people reckon with that. This was a high school kid, little um, more open-minded than a lot of college students. But my point is that, when they see it, I don't have to even really walk them through the syllogism. I'll still give it if I can, but in a moment they get it. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's, I guess, move on to number three then, Jay, if you're good to go. Um, number I'm good three to is go. that 
All right, cool. Number three may be my most controversial statement, <laughs> um, and that is, I and this is maybe I'm not trying to be provocative with it, but I would say apologetics don't save people. People save people using apologetics. And my point is that I think that apologetics are so critical, right? There's a reason that you and I have committed our lives to this, not to just being against abortion, but understanding the real answers because we don't want to be simplistic. There are some really robust philosophical arguments to wrestle with, right? The Thompson argument, the violinist, Boonin's arguments, and really important things that we have to have good answers to. And that's really important. There's a reason that I went to Biola to study apologetics, get a master's degree, because I want to really wrestle with it well. But Merely having the answers in your mind will do no help to the babies dying today. So I think what's important to remember is that, you know, for for a couple of years, I was a youth minister training my students um, in the biblical worldview, how to answer relativism, taking them to a training camp where Scott was coming to speak and talk about pro-life apologetics. But there was one day when my when my pastor said, hey, Seth, want to have some fun with the youth group tonight? I said, sure. And I was in Indiana, super red state. And but there was a day came when they uh, Barack Obama was running for the first time. And there was there was the possibility of flipping Indiana blue. And that did happen. And because of that, all the candidates, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, they were all coming to Fort Wayne, Indiana for the first time, really with, with any earnest. So he said, so you want to have fun, take the youth group kids tonight to go to Hillary Clinton's rally, stand outside and just talk to people and see how it goes. And we just had signs that said abortion kills children, old Operation Rescue signs, no pictures at the time. I didn't have access to them. But what I saw happening was my students who had all the theory in their mind started using those arguments. And not only did their faith become more robust as they really thought it through by interacting with those who disagreed with them, they actually were using these arguments to, again, move people. And so the arguments staying in their mind could be helpful for their faith. When they actually engage people, that is what's going to actually move the needle and change people. And so I love apologetics. I think we must study it, but we study it for a purpose. Everyone who goes to your events and listens to you, Jay, the hope and plan is they will then go talk to people because they have yeah. spheres of influence you don't have, right? And you yeah. and I have spheres of influence they don't have. So all of us must do that to engage different people. And when we do that, that is when we can actually see that happen. And so that's going to look different. It might be for you and me, a formal debate with a abortion advocate. For other people, it might just be talking to their neighbor. Right now in Ohio, where we have this really shocking effort of uh, the pro-abortion groups are, groups are trying to change our state constitution this fall to make abortion a fundamental right through all nine months of pregnancy. We're in a powerful moment now where every person must talk to everyone they know about abortion yeah. because we need everyone engaging with this. And so my hope and desire is that we don't just think about it. Don't just love scratching intellectual itch. And I think I know that you don't believe that you're committed to this to actually move people to do something. And that's my hope, too, that all of our efforts are going to lead to actually going to somewhere it's not going to be college campuses but think about where can i influence people right and that's gonna look different for all of us yeah and and, uh, i gotta tell you when you first said you're gonna say something controversial i got a little excited i was like all right here comes something controversial. and then it's not very shocking (laughs) i don't think there was anything controversial about what you just said at all um yeah I, i i tell i think one of the um one of the most important things that i try to communicate to audiences is that you know I was a swimmer when I was younger. It's going to sound like a rabbit trail for a second. I was a swimmer when I was younger. Okay. And in the United States, swimming is a sport we care about every four years. When when the Olympics comes, we get really excited about swimming. Uh, And for a long time, when I was younger, abortion was very similar. There would be a lot of heated abortion arguments during election cycles, but not really any other time. And what, what I think one of the most important things that we can do as, as we're trying to influence the culture around us is to convince people 
that a form of active protest against abortion is to never let the subject die. Not mm. to, you know, that we just always have some means of talking about it. Kristen Polo and I talked about this years ago. And this is like some days it's just as easy as what did I do today to resist abortion in the world? What did, what did I do today to love my neighbor as myself a little more and to help others in my community to effectively see their neighbors? Uh, and, and, and even those that they don't see as their neighbors, the, the unborn, the, the embryo, the fetus, how do I help them to see them? And so there is something obviously true about what you just said, right? Apologetics is a tool that we use to accomplish a larger goal, but that larger goal is, is only going to be affected by people to people. And the problem is if you lose sight of that, then you just become an arguing machine. Uh, and nobody is actually convinced by arguing machines. They're just not. Hmm. I mean, you're, you're, I, the person that was most, the person who impacted me the most is the person who obviously cared about me the most conversationally. They weren't the smartest person I ever talked to, but man, I believed that they cared Hmm. when, when I was talking to them and that mattered to me because, and and I'll, I'll put this when I was many years ago, I was at the university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And then after I spoke the next day, I did four hours, a lot of something more similar to what you do, but I was in the, out in the, what they call the pit at university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And, and as people were walking by, we had the sign over my head, inviting dialogue and, and arguing. And there was a, a gentleman that listened the entire time, a student there who was there the entire time I was talking. And, and he had yelled at me a few times during the talk. And he had actually brought up the rape section uh, exception when we were talking, but he stayed, he kept staying. And when it was mm-hmm. over, he came up to me and he said, can I ask you a question unrelated to abortion? I said, sure. Knock yourself out, man. And he said, why are you a Christian? That's a very interesting question. Why are you asking me that question? And he said, because the Christians who come to campus are nothing like you. Hmm. He said, you've just been so respectful and so gracious. And me and other people, we were yelling at you. And you just never, it never phased you. You just kept talking all day. And I just don't understand why somebody like you believes these other things. And, and there's that to me is a powerful testimony to how much just operating the grace and mercy of Christ in the middle of these conversations can get work done that even our arguments aren't getting done. That the style, the, the idea that I cared that I didn't let them upset me uh, that I wasn't affected by, and and I have been very open about this in many talks uh, that are not about abortion. We're going to talk more about uh, other stuff in faith. That one of my favorite things about Jesus is that he is unchanged by the world. The world, mm. he changed the world, but the world didn't change him. Everybody I know, including me, in some way or another are transformed by the world around us. We're changed by it. It impacts us. It makes us into something. Oftentimes it makes us into things we don't want to be, even if it's just temporarily. It, yeah. it, it gets to us. It just does. It gets to me. Sooner or later, it gets to me. It never got to him. Not like that. It never changed him, never got him off mission, never made him something he didn't want to be. He was always able to be true to what he was in the midst of all of that. Obviously, he's Jesus. I mean, that yeah. he's, and I'm not. <laughs> but there, that power, I mean, that's something that I, I take very seriously as we go forth with arguments is to be the kind of person that uses arguments to impact other people. 
and that the man matters. It does. Apologetics yep. are empty. I've met a lot of people in apologetics, by the way, that are just terrible people, terrible, mm. terrible human beings. You go to dinner with them after an event and talk to them. Like, why? Why are you doing this? But they're in love with arguing and they're yeah. in love with the arguments and they don't care a whit about the people who become the, su- that they're arguing with. They just care about being right. And it's just horrifying to me when you meet somebody like that. So not only am I disappointed that you didn't say something, cause Scott did say some controversial things. And I was oh yeah, he did. I listened to his <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I love it. I welcome that sort of stuff. Um, I have an interview that I lost with Richard Stith from many years ago. Oh, and he said some really controversial things in our conversation. And then it just, it, it, I lost it. Uh, and that we had some tech issues and I lost it. Oh, and I've never had, I've never had the heart to call him back and ask him to do it again <laughs> because he was so, he was so gracious. But as we were talking about before we recorded this, he was not what we would call tech savvy. So it was a, it was a battle to get him going. Uh, but he said some wildly controversial things in our conversation. Uh, so but I, I do think Jay though, um, like, so I, I have people I know who've gone to apologetics events and these are, good people who care about the Lord and they care about babies. And when I've asked them, they've been to multiple training camps. They've heard many times how to argue abortion. And I will ask them, how many conversations have you had? It's shockingly low. So there's yep. still, even though I think we recognize that apologetics, we need to use it. It's a tool. For some reason we're not. And I think that the question is why we don't know for every person, but my experience is I think a lot of people even want to do it, but there's something holding them back from actually talking to people or going to do a, a public outreach of some kind, or even just talk to their neighbor. And I think, I don't know about you, but I think the biggest thing is fear. We're just yes. really afraid of maybe being, some of them say, I don't know what to say. I'll be wrong. And I'll say, yes, you will do it wrongly. You'll say something wrongly. Just be honest, willing to say, we don't know. Like say, Hey, I don't know the answer. Give me a second. Be honest about it, but you're going to make mistakes. If you wait till you're perfect, you're never going to start having these conversations because yep. Neither of us are perfect, and we've been doing this for a long time, right? We yeah. have to correct ourselves at times, and that's okay. And I think it actually helps the conversation when you're honest like that. But so something is wrong here. Some for some reason, it's just like the church knows we must evangelize, but why are we often not doing it? I think we're fearful of a lot of things being wrong. Another one, I think some people are just really fearful of their reputation. I mean, there's so mm-hmm. much pressure these days of fitting in social media. I want to be, there's FOMO. Like I want to be in the crowd and I want to be left out. And so if I'm seen as that abortion person, that weirdo, it starts to change my social status. And I think there is something going on here. We have to correct. And I don't know, what is, have you have experience with that or thoughts on that? I do know that um, I've talked to several young people and I've actually talked to other people in ministry whose kids have gone through this. My own kids have gone through this as well. Uh, w- during the last election process, there were people that went after them for being pro-life online. I mean, viciously, they had circles or friends uh, that they were suddenly outcasted from because they was determined that they were conservative or that they were pro-life. And, and it was, it was hard. I remember when one of my kids came to me and said, it was so funny because you know, for me, it was such an obvious answer to them. They walked in, they said, Hey dad, do you care if I delete all my social media accounts? said, heck no, man, delete every single one. I don't care. That would be the healthiest thing you could ever do for yourself. said, but so no matter what the next part of this conversation is, I fully endorse that. Now here's the question, why? And they shared with me the attacks that they were under and their personal messages and direct messages from people who are in us. And they said, I want to be able to block people and I want to be able to close it. But I didn't know if there was anything wrong with that. And I remember telling them, I I was like, you have no you have no responsibility or duty to allow hateful people 
24 hour access to you. Yeah. The healthiest thing that you can do is close it off is to just shut it down. So yeah, shut it all down every bit of it and walk away from it. And remember that people are a lot nicer to you face to face oftentimes than they are online. Online fuels anger and hatred and gang and, and that sort of mob mentality in a way that face to face just doesn't. And so if you drop it and you go talk to them face to face, you might get a different reaction or you might not. And it might just be the end yeah. of certain relationships. But you're right. The fear of that is is both that I remember speaking in a couple of times, but one time I think this was in Illinois, I believe. And one of the teachers came up to me after I got done speaking and said, you know what the most shocking thing that you said for that audience was? And she said, I don't think you picked up on it. And I said, what was that? And she said, is when you said, I don't care if you hate me. Hmm. She said, that is so foreign to them. Hmm. They, they live their life consumed or concerned about what their community and the people around them and their, what their peers think about them. And they're, they're trying their hardest to win their favor. And then you stood up and you said something that you were aware that many of the people in the room didn't like. And as a course, of the conversation you said, I don't care if you hate me, but going back to something you said multiple times was that the key of my response or the core of my response to that was you don't know me. Yeah. You don't hate me. You hate what I'm saying. And I'm fine with you hating what I'm saying because I wouldn't say it if it didn't have meaning to me, if it wasn't important. And if you hate me because I say every human being ought to be treated with dignity and respect and that embryonic humans and fetal humans are human beings and they fall in that category, I can live with it, man. I'm good. It, it yeah. really doesn't bother me because you don't know me. You don't hate me. You hate what I'm saying. And yep. so I don't bother worrying about that, but other people do. So I do think that is a huge part of it, the fear of, of the rejection and, and, and not trying to convince people it won't happen. It could happen. It will happen. There will be people that don't like you for saying this. You will lose people out of your community. It's worth it. It's fine. There's some things that are just worth being hated over. And the other thing I think you touched on the fear of failure. I'm going to go to some place that's much more trivial that I see this a lot. One of the things I love chess. I think chess is, is incredibly fun game. Uh, I'm not a grand master at it or anything, but I'm pretty good at chess and I've always been pretty good. I beat most of my friends. I beat, well, not most. I beat all my friends. I'm glad, glad we're not playing me, chess right now. Yeah, I, I beat my friends at chess. Uh, I, nice. there, I did play a guy who was like a really great chess player with my wife's uncle, and he beat me twice. Uh, and and it, it was, if you were watching it, you probably thought it was a close match. It wasn't. He just destroyed me. It just took a long time for him to destroy me. So he was better. And then there's guys like Tim McGrew and his family out there who are like crazy chess geniuses. But here's the thing I've noticed about chess when I teach young people to play, because it's important to me that my kids learn how to play it because it's a great game. Chess is a board game. It's not an IQ test. If you yeah. lose a game of chess, it doesn't mean anything at all. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean that you're, I mean that you're not, a, it doesn't mean anything. There's no value judgment being made on you, but because we have so acquainted chess with intelligence in our culture, people are afraid to play it. I think because when I talk to them and say, why are you afraid? They're afraid of what losing or not being good at chess means about them. Hmm. And, like, and it doesn't mean anything. It's a board game. Would you sit around and be stressed about how you did at connect four or monopoly or any other game? No, you wouldn't, but you've allowed people to make you believe that this is somehow a judgment upon you. And so when I transfer that over to talk about talking about morally important issues like this, we see failure as some way an indictment of our overall intelligence or ability. The failure is not talking. Yeah, right. Failing to talk well, you'll just get better at this, man. Yeah. You will. 
The more you talk about it, the better you will get at it. Failure is being quiet. That's failure. But talking and not talking well initially, the first day we were, we did a podcast, episode number one, we all came in here and JD is giving me a look over there and, and his, his wife, Lisa was here and we were setting it up and Lisa seemed very concerned that everything go well. And I remember looking at Lisa and I said, Lisa, where this is the worst we are ever going to be at podcasting today. This <laughs> yeah. is going to be the worst we ever do. We are terrible at podcasting today, but we're just going to do it anyway. And hopefully if we keep doing this, we're going to get better and better and better at it. And, and I think that that is something that just has to be encouraged. Learn the tools and then go out and don't be afraid to fail because it, the, the biggest failure would be to not engage at all. Uh, and, and quiet, silence, that's failure. Not, not handling yourself well in every, you and I, talk, we've talked about it already. I can, I can tell you five times off the top of my head where I let people get to me during Q and A's, where I failed to be as gracious it's like, and, and I can tell you at least two of them that I feel like God destined me to be ugly at that point. But that's just all those rationalizations because I know someone got to me and, and, it, and it set me off. And I didn't operate in the spirit that I ought to have operated in at that moment. It's so true. Um, I, I think that it's, it is fear and we, it, is, it is surmountable, right? And so I yeah. think that if you don't engage, 100% certainty you will fail. If you do engage, you might fail, right? So there's yep. better odds on this side, right? And it's, again, it's why it's so easy when I have the pictures with me. Even if my words are not great, the pictures already communicate everything. So it really takes the pressure off of me too, having yep. them with me. But maybe to also just to kind of show how this works. Um, let's play the, the third video clip, just showing in a conversation. My point is not that I saved this person or saved a baby in this conversation. There are other videos on our YouTube channel of where parents choose not to kill their babies after our sidewalk counseling. But this, my goal is just showing people how dialogue is still possible. It's dark out there. And yes, people are politically super polarized, but you still can have conversations if you are willing to engage in it. So the, the third video clip, I think, shows that. How do you think about that? It makes me want to throw up. I just ate sushi. Well, I agree with you. So what do you think about that? Is it right or wrong to do that to a child? Um, to rip her head off? Oh, to rip her head off. I mean, that's what no. you're seeing, right? Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> I, do you think abortion's ever okay? If we're talking about like a child, maybe that was raped. Like a, a young kid? Yeah. Ten-year-old? If, if, if it's a young kid, then I, I, I agree with abortion. But if it's someone that's just old and doesn't want to have a baby, I don't really think it's... Can I ask you a question? Okay. Yeah. Why, why, why is it different with a young child? What makes it different? They have their whole life ahead of them. They're seven. Yeah. They're eight, ten. Right. So I agree with you. I mean, it doesn't make it more wrong. It's wrong to rape a 30-year-old or a seven-year-old, but there's something like more, the younger you are, the more um, vulnerable you are, right? Yeah. It's more disgusting to us, but who's even younger than the seven-year-old? I guess you could her say Her seven-week and baby, right? Yeah, I guess you could her. say the fetus. So if it's wrong to rape the seven-year-old, is it also wrong to dismember the seven-week-old embryo? It could be the same thing, too. Yeah, so it's wrong Using to kill the them. same knowledge. Yeah, so shouldn't, is it best to kill neither of them? Help them both? If I mean, it I comes down to it, yeah. I think the, 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 crim, the guy who did the crime should be punished. We don't punish the mom or the innocent baby. They're not the victimizer. They're victims. Uh-oh. So I think even with rape, it's terrible, but you can't rape someone. Abortion is not like a medical treatment to take care of the rape. It's, yeah. You can't take the trauma away. The question is, do we kill a baby for what her dad did? And that seems wrong to me. What do you think? It's hard to hear at the end. She just says, I have to agree with you. And it was cold that day. So she was walking away. But I, my point with this video clip is to show that it's not like a simple, here's the answer, you're done, move on, right? This is, this is hard. You're talking to people about their 
their belief on abortion, which is connected to so much else, right? Their political yeah. views, their background. And so you have to sort through, navigate that. But if you're willing to just have a pretty simple, I mean, that conversation, I was not going, quoting high philosophy or, or difficult embryology, right? Just walking through with her, her views. And clearly she was, she thought abortion was ugly to see, but the rape question is what justified in her mind. But there was a deep-seated principle there that a young person should not be violated that actually ought to lead her to oppose abortion. All I had to do was connect her deep yeah. principle back to abortion, and then we can move forward, make some progress. I, I have no clue if she's fully pro-life now, but my point is we're bringing people toward the truth that it is not as hard as we think it is. Uh, what you said, Jay, a moment ago, people say, I have, I don't have the answers, Seth. You have all the answers. Like, no, I, okay, today I know how to answer a lot of questions, but it's not that I have all the answers. And num number one, it didn't just happen overnight. I just have had countless conversations on countless campuses. And every time our team debriefs afterward, we talk about how to do this better. We even have a podcast where we debrief together to talk through our, our conversations. And the point is that we're trying to always get better and you just got to do it. As you do yeah. it, it'll become second nature to you. It really will. And I think what you did there that I love and as, as watching it is you have to talk to your audience and it would have been weird for you to be ultra apologetics in that conversation. Yeah. That would have been a strange decision to make. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have played well with your audience. They wouldn't have heard you. I mean, if, if, if somebody comes up and it's very conversationally like you're doing there and you're talking and, and you just, just gone all, you know, in this book, Frank Beckwith says this, and Christopher Kayser says that, and in this embryology textbook, it doesn't, you have to be mindful of who you're talking to. And that is one of the things I've noticed. I, I would say one of the great blessings that I've had in speaking is that at the point where I needed to change my voice, and I think speakers need to change their voice a lot, a lot more than they do. I think the worst thing that you can do, any speaker can do, is that we can fall into, this is how I talk, and this is how I present myself. And as culture and the world around us changes, we become less and less relevant because even if our, our voice spoke to an audience 10 years ago, it doesn't speak to them today because the audience has changed. And I've been blessed to be able to track that change through my kids. So there's always a question for me of how do I talk to this audience? How would I talk to my kids if I were trying to convey this information? And so mm. I can't go crazy with some day, there are places I've been invited where I can. It was really fun to go to places like Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill, mm -hmm. where I was called into this academic area and I could just go academically to town and you could talk yeah. at the, this higher, more sophisticated level and addressing those issues at, at that level. But when you're having a conversation like that, you really have to be mindful of who you're talking to and what way of talking to them will get the work done that you want to get done. And I think you, I mean, that's the thing I like about watching you. I know what you know, and you're so good at that. It, 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 it talking to the people in front of you at the level that it will make sense for the conversation you're having and not trying to impose upon them some structure of apologetics that will satisfy your need to be smart or clever, but will do nothing to move them towards the truth. Mm. And, and this but, is a yeah. hugely important point to me. It's, it's hugely important. Uh, my undergrad was in foreign language. I, I lived in France for a little while teaching English because my goal was to be a high school French and English teacher, which that's a different story. But my point is when I was there, I think there's a lot of connection here. Apologetics and foreign language acquisition is very similar. If you want to really speak a language well, it's not merely a textbook. You have to go live in the culture, find out how they really talk, understand the way they think if you want to really communicate, right? So if we want to really communicate with people who are opposed to us politically, philosophically, we can't just know our views. We have to know them really 
really well and spend time with them, get to know them, and actually, just like a missionary, how you reach out to other people groups. And that's really important. When I was in France, one of my professors was talking about Nicolas Sarkozy, who became the president of France for a while. And she was saying he was so skilled at what you just said, Jay. He was so skilled at talking to the high audiences and using his phonetic use of the foreign of the French language in a way that was very high level. And he would talk to the normal people in a very like, I don't want to say slang, but he would change his phonetic structure of his words even to speak to them in a way that captured everyone on their level. And he yeah. became president. That's so important that you not only know people well, but know how to communicate in a way that will ring true with them and make sense to them. Yeah. And it's not condescending. We're not talking about being condescending, right? Sure, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's recognizing and respecting the way people communicate and, and how they process the ideas and the information. And, and sometimes it's very appropriate to be very technical and sophisticated in how we talk. I, I write, I get to write articles for people like Christian research journal. I feel like when I write them, an article, I just finished one on CRISPR technology for them. Mm. When I write for them, it's it's somewhere in the middle, right? It's not like I'm talking to my kids, although my kids are really smart and two of them are in college now, so it is kind of like I'm talking to them. And it's not, how, but it's not how I would talk to like an elementary school or a normal high school student, but it's also not an academic paper. It's somewhere in the middle there. You need to understand the audience. And that's fun to be able to dive into very technical information and then try to find a 3,000 word way of expressing things to an audience that I have to remember hasn't spent the last three months reading about CRISPR. And so you have, there's a lot to think through as you're, as we're figuring out how to communicate, but it's not condescension or it's not, what it is, is it's recognizing that the, the information that they have prior to the conversation, the language that they're, they process in, they think things through, we are talking about sophisticated things. We're just talking about it in a way that makes sense to the people that we're talking to. And if they, if they give verbal cues that they want to go deeper, then we can go deeper, right? I mean, that's something that we listen yeah. for. I've, I'm talking here at a level that I think you and I can chat and have a normal conversation and find some common ground between the two of us. But if the conversation gives us verbal cues that we need to go deeper, then we go deeper. But I, don't, I yeah. think it's a mistake to start off every conversation like where it's an apologetics lecture. We're talking to a human being. We need to figure out who we're talking to first. It's so... It is so key. I, I don't understand people that don't modify their messages for audiences. I do so much work before I go somewhere to do everything that I can to find out who I'm talking to. And I can remember a handful of times. I remember going to a Catholic school up in the uh, Worcester, Massachusetts area. And I had been told for months as I was, as I was touching base with the guy who ran it, these are just good kids or great kids. It's wonderful kids. And I understood that to mean something different than what he meant. And when I got there and he was giving me a tour of the school and we're chatting and I said, how many students in this school would you consider to be practicing Catholics? And he said, oh, you know, maybe 15, 20%. And I was like, whoa. Wow. What do you, I, I have thought for a month or two that I'm coming to talk to this, this Catholic school, mm. this filled with practicing Catholics. And what you just told me is that I'm getting ready to talk to a group that is probably 90% minimum going to be hostile to what I'm saying. Wow. Because I know of the practicing Catholics, 50% of them aren't going to be on my side. So it's like, I got, I got 10% in this room of like 1,100 students that are actually going to be on my side. The wow. other are working class people from Worcester, Massachusetts, who are going to want to put me on a raw, a pole and run me out of town. And so he's, he and I are chatting and he's walking around the school talking to me like nothing's happened. And I'm reevaluating the entire speech in my head about what I got to do now, about how I got to address what's about to happen. 
if you don't know who you're talking to, you will fail to be able to actively communicate to them. And and that's, so that's so true. Yeah. Yeah, no, sorry. Go ahead. I just I was saying no, it's so no, true. No, Amen. no, no. I've, I've said enough there. Go ahead. Well, no, I I think that's so true, and I think that the cues are they're sometimes a, they're huge. Everybody hit us in the face, right? And it's not always just like uh, the philosophical level, like what level to speak on, but it's also knowing what might be helpful in that moment to that person. And maybe this kind of brings it all full circle. I mentioned earlier that day, Florida State University in Tallahassee, this really horrible crowd. And I had to walk away. And I said, I came back and I had this conversation that has still stuck with me. And that conversation was one where I was by this picture of a dead baby, as we always are on campus. And this guy walked up. His name is Chris. And Chris said to me, uh, I asked Chris, what do you think about abortion? He said, well, um, I think that these are these images are hard to see and um i said well why is that and he said well a couple weeks ago my girlfriend we she was pregnant uh she just called me up a couple weeks ago and said you know what i just got rid of it and chris at that point his his just his eyes were downcast and i i know for a fact that if i had met him before i walked away and kind of refocused myself and i was in my unloving mode i would not have been able to help him at all i might have even Hopefully not, but I might have even wanted to dump down on him in this moment of pain as he's grieving this. Um, but I said, so, okay, how do you feel now? It was clear already, but I asked him to communicate. And I'm listening here for the cues. Again, like in my mind, I'm in the mode of always apologize, apologize, change their mind on abortion. This guy's in front of me about ready to cry. So pretty obvious cue. You have to be pretty tone deaf to know that at that moment he needs something else. But so, so I asked him, how do you feel? And he just said, well, this is really hard because um, I don't want anyone to feel what I feel. And then this was really interesting. He said, he looked at me and said, do you have any pictures of a 20 week fetus? I was like, oh gosh, I knew why he's asking me that. That must've been the age his baby was when he oh. was killed. And I said, yeah, and thankfully I was, uh, there was a sign nearby showing a 20 week baby growing in the womb. Not what, but we also had those killed by abortion, but I took him to the one growing in the womb and said, here you go. And he just looked at it. And even though the baby was growing, not killed, he paired it in his mind with those who were killed on the nearby signs and his just face got downcast and he's, the tears were welling up in his eyes. And he, he said, it's just not right. I'm always the kind of person who defends all of my friends. And here the one person that I should have protected and his voice has mm. trailed off. But so God had refocused me in that moment. I knew what he needed, but also I had this special. This is, I think, for your audience to know that you may not have all the answers Jay has. But you have something Jay does not have, and that's a unique story God has given you. In that moment, I was on campus with Stephanie Gray Connors, others who knew the arguments better than me, but I had a unique story looking at Chris and that, that, that just a few months before, my wife and I had become pregnant with our first child, and we had lost that child in miscarriage. And so I looked at Chris, and I said, Chris, you have to know that – I said, I don't know, you know your pain. I've never had an abortion. But just a couple weeks ago, my wife was pregnant. A couple months ago, we started fearing the baby was getting lost. I prayed hard, went to sleep with my hand on my wife's abdomen, praying for the baby to be saved, waking up to crying hours later, her in the bathroom, knowing we had lost the baby. I had not gotten the answer to prayer I wanted. And so, Chris, my story is different, but you have to know that you and I are and always will be fathers, even if our children are not yet here. And I share with him that, you know, the good news that um, if you believe in Jesus, I'm convinced that the souls God creates for all of us. God, we know, doesn't create souls that just pass out of existence. So if you believe in Jesus, I believe you'll meet your child someday. Now, Chris did not leave me that moment skipping joyfully, but I was on campus two days on that campus. And the second day he came back and he was not crying. He was not sad. His whole countenance had changed. He was smiling, joyful. He brought a friend and said, look, that's my baby on that sign. 
that 20 week fetus pointing to it. And my point is that God used, even though I was new to this, he used my story. If I was willing to share it, listen for cues and share my personal background of pain to bring this guy who was grieving to the truth. And so it's apologetics. It's also your story. It's wrapping it all and be willing to be vulnerable, to make mistakes, to share your stories. God will use it to move people toward his truth on abortion and also to the cross. And that's all this, what our project is, Jade. You know that I know that. We have to ask, who can I influence today? Who can I share truth with? And how do I do it in a way that might be uncomfortable, but might be life-saving? If you're willing to do that, we can have huge impacts on people individually and also as a culture as we continue doing this more and more. Awesome. Okay, now you had a bonus video. What do we have to do? Oh, to yeah. Unpack the bonus? All right. What do, what do we do to Should unlock we... the next level? <laughs> yeah. I'm all we about go leveling on... up here. We this is something. a fun little clip, I think, maybe to show your your audience like what it looks like on a lot of college campuses. Wait a minute. Before you run it, we need Lisa to do some leveling up sound effects for this. So make sure that goes in. All right, go ahead. Yeah, we were recovered. Oh, look at this little squishy head. I think abortion is up bodily autonomy right and you are all idiots but you are denying bodily autonomy to those who are too young they're to be born not living if they're too young right. to be she, born, she, she, she's living. dead now but she was growing dead things don't grow this grass is alive that's why it's growing that human was growing that's she was alive but she couldn't be supported on her own well that's true that's that true her a well okay we killed us. she was one week away from from um, viability one week away from being able to survive on her own but so why she wasn't able to survive on her own why does that matter because it's not a living thing at that point. It's not its own person. This does not be medieval. This is the scientific age. We know that being, we know that if you're growing, you're alive. This human here, if she's tossed, a, tossed outside, she'll die. She can't survive on her own unless someone takes care of her. Yeah, but she's not inside of another person's body. True, but she's inside someone's house. My God, a body and a house, they are the same. If I say my house, my choice, I say that's wrong, right? I, Sense. The point is that she is housed in someone's house. She is housed in someone's body. Different, I agree, because but in either way, the mother and father are taking care of the child in their house, or the mother is taking care of the child in her body. Yeah, but it's her choice to take care of that child. True, but what if she doesn't want to? Is it moral to kill someone you don't want to take care of? Yes, because that is not a living thing. But you know what? We all we take Bio 101. Did you you take Bio 101? You idiots! Abortion is a right! All right, Jay, so I share this clip to kind of put myself out there, right, to be a little more vulnerable, because I think as you listen to it, you can hear that in the beginning or earlier part of it, because she's pretty sharp with me, my tone is a little bit sharp. It's like, sure, like I, I'm pretty short with my tone. I think it shifts a little bit toward the end. I become a little more calmed down. Even I, I at times have to make remind myself, be calm, be chill, right? So this is always a project of getting better at this. But I think also what we see in this is kind of, the what is at play today on college campuses this is really whether or not their human being has been forgotten if that's scientific she she is still saying it doesn't matter because it's not autonomous that's not the right question that again we're we're kind of blending categories at that point i am asking is she a human whether or not it's right to kill someone who needs her mom for support is a again philosophical question a worldview question so i think it's important just to see that this is what a lot of people hold um but also, I hope that your audience is a little bit encouraged by this, that when we hear bodily autonomy, a lot of students I talk to, pro-life ones, kind of freak out, like, I don't have all the answers, but it's not really a robust argument here. This is not no. Judith Jarvis Thompson we're talking no. about. She's just shouting it, right? Yes. It's not that hard to correct that argument. Yeah, in order to engage it, right, to just get yeah. the one – of the, one of the most difficult – Things I think is to, to use, and you mentioned this earlier. I thought you did such a, a great job of it, and it's because it is something that 
that I've thought about a lot. And, and when we have conversations with people, we're not trying to win everything. We're trying to move them over one degree for me. Yeah. That's, it's, so if you take me to a place where I know I have an incredibly hostile audience, I had, I had the privilege many years ago of going to Harvard Hall and speaking there. And, and um, the room was full. I knew it was going to be a, a group of people there that did not agree with me. And so the, the, I didn't go into Harvard Hall in the lecture that I gave there that night with the idea of I'm going to make this room full of people pro-life. What I did was I said, I'm going to make this room full of people believe that the pro-life position is reasonable. Hmm. And, hmm. and that, was, that was my goal. I w- and, and if there's anyone in this room that, is, that thinks that we're idiots, like that person yelling there, <laughs> I want them to walk away from this conversation believing that that's not the case. Because it's so easy to dismiss people, but it's not when you realize that they're reasonable human beings. They just disagree with you, but they're reasonable human beings. They have reasons to believe the things that they believe. And ultimately, I think our reasons are better and yeah. that, they, that they do better in, in competitive conversation. So I think that there's such a great goal there when you were talking to somebody. Can first of all, I I mean, if I if I were in the shoes, if I were where, where you were, and and we do have to accept that there's some people that just won't be reasoned with, right? right. I mean, and, and she at least engaged to some degree. I remember being at one campus and I was talking to somebody, and there was a person who kept riding their bike and yelling at me, like they're calling me like Christian Taliban and stuff like that. <laughs> Which I, and the person talking to me said, "Does that not bother you?" And I said, what, the person yelling from 30 feet away? No, they're not bothering me. They're fine. If they really <laughs> wanted to talk, they would come over and talk. I'm not worried about the person 30 feet away yelling. They're not my, they're not my problem today. Uh, and so, but so you, there are people that won't be reasoned with, but sometimes being reasonable in a conversation like that, it's, it's not necessarily for the person you're talking to. There mm, can be people yeah. that are watching, right? There can be somebody else that sees and I, I've had so many people come up to me when somebody treats me with incivility or rude in a rude manner and, and you answer well, you do your best to weather the storm. I talk about that a lot for me, weather the storm. They're going to come at you to try to evoke an emotional response in you. They want you to meet them in their anger. They want to start a fight, whatever they want yeah. to do. They're trying to provoke a reaction from you. If you weather the storm of that initial approach and just stay cool even if you fail in some sense to engage that person, you'd be surprised how much somebody watching becomes convinced that there's more to it by like just the way you handled it, man. I just like you better. I had a guy that kept saying that to my wife when she was younger, she was having a conversation with somebody. Another person was just being not just wrong, but, but uh, you know, object objectionably and wrong, both of those things. Right. And, this person that was watching, who was not a part of the conversation, interrupted both of them and said, well, I, I like what she is saying, and I like how she's saying it, and she makes sense. You make no sense, and I don't like what you were saying. <laughs> and she said, you know, this person was intransigent and wouldn't change their position, and she didn't even think about this other person watching, but that person interrupted and said, I've been watching, I've been listening, I love this person and what they're saying, it makes sense to me, I like it. You make no sense. And I don't like the way that you're talking and you're yelling. So there is value, even when we may, like you didn't get that girl to stop and listen. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, she was going to do what she was going, that young woman was to do what she was going to do. But, but your reaction to her, your measured attempts to have a reasonable conversation can have an impact on people. Even if that felt like failure at that moment that we just don't understand or don't know. 
Uh, You're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, there were even the video cuts off um, for the Instagram post that I made on that. But as as I walked away, she screamed. One other guy talking to one of my coworkers said, kind of referring to her, said, okay, well, welcome to Discourse. We can talk about things reasonably, right? He was recognizing that she was one yelling. And yes. I, I agree with you. I think that at least if people recognize which side is reasonable, which side has scientific answers, which side can stay calm and be reasonable about this, that is a win already. Yep. And I have had, I'm sure you've had this, uh, you just said you had this, but um, I did a debate at Purdue University with Dr. David Sanders. And it was bizarre where as I was giving the opening speech, he cracked open a pop can, I was drinking it. When he that spoke, so he walked in the room. It was yeah. bizarre, yelling the whole time. But I had a lot of pro-choice students afterward come up so embarrassed. Like, I'm so sorry, that was so uncomfortable. I'm really embarrassed for how he treated you. I'm like, well, that's good. At least you've have alienated a bit from your side and that is benefit to us. So I 100% agree with what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, you just, as long as you affect a good demeanor in the midst of this, and remember, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. You exactly. are not failing when you talk and you don't do everything right because it's not about you. You're just a voice in this world saying, we shouldn't do this. We should stop and reflect on why we're doing this. We should ask questions about this. We should love our neighbors ourselves. We should understand we're at our best when our neighborhood is expansive and where we see the maximum number of human beings as having value that we can possibly see. And all of these things are important to us being able to engage, but it's not about you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting what you're saying. As long as what you're saying makes sense, don't worry about it. And being reasonable, it is so crazy how unreasonable they can be, but how bad it makes them look. And here's, here's one thing, and I'm going to turn it over to you for your last word in a second here, but here's my last word. I, 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 I am not all, I said, I said earlier, I'm for the most part seen as uncontroversial. I tend to get along with audiences pretty well. Even when some of them, they get mad at me. They tend to, to play nice for the most part. Uh, but there are times where I am blunt. And, and if I feel like there's no reason any longer to try to, to, to continue this. I do think there's a time where all, all conversations must come to an end. I, I think mm -hmm. it's a disciplined thing. One of the hardest disciplines you can have is saying, we've said what we've said. You've said your piece. I heard you. I've said my piece. Hopefully you've heard me. It's time for us to move on because it is now just unproductive back and forth. And, and that doesn't help anything. And I want to get on to productive conversations. But I remember a person similar to the person you had just there who was at an event in the Chicago area. And I lectured, got done taking Q and a, and this person got up and was, was pretty hostile, right? Never ever believe what you say is true. I'm never, you know, no matter what you say, you will never convince me that women don't have a right to abortion. So that, that may be true, but here's your problem. That hardly matters to me because at the end of the day, I don't have to convince you. I have to con convince enough people to change the culture that we live in. You can remain unconvinced to the day you die. Mm. But if you argue the way you're arguing today, you're going to lose. Yeah. It said, I will, I will appeal to them to treat other human beings with dignity and respect. I will appeal to them that an inclusive view of human value is better for all of us across multiple issues, not just the issue of abortion. I will appeal to them that we are at our best when we work collectively to solve human problems and not to see other human beings as the problems themselves. I will make that case and you will continue to talk the way that you just talked to me in front of this audience and you will lose. So it's like, yeah. so I beg you go out and make your case the way that you just made it here today. I beg you to be dismissive. <laughs> I beg you to be insulting. I beg you to do that because I don't have to convince you. I have to convince enough people to change the culture and I will lose no sleep tonight that I couldn't convince you 
as long as you are actively doing what we talked about today. And so there is a, a, we don't have to feel every person that remains unconvinced is a failure. This is a, a cultural enterprise and, and, and we're going to lose individuals. But if we stay on message, I, I firmly believe we can win. You're so right. I think that one thing we just often forget, what is our project, right? To convince every person? No. I mean, think about the battles that have been won, abolishing slavery and many others. Did they convince every person in the U.S. that slavery was wrong or that black and white are equal? No, right? They convinced enough of the people to move forward. So we need consensus as to move forward. And that certainly not, we're going to got in Ohio again, we're fighting this ballot initiative. We're not going to convince every Ohioan. We want enough Ohioans who will vote against this pro-abortion ballot initiative. And that's our goal, right? So what you said is just so right. And Jay, I guess my final thought would be that because I know that all of this, like using victim photos can be scary to people, having conversations can be scary if it's the first time. Uh, We often think about how do I keep those categories clear in our mind? I think a lot of this comes down to what you and I have benefited from. And that is mentorship, right? We need someone to help yes. us. And that's why Create Equal, we know that it's not just our staff. I mean, Mark Harrington, when we kind of were developing our Create Equal model, he said, like, we could just go around talking to people, but that's not so good. We need to be leading people into this. So we designed our programs, primarily the Justice Ride and the Day of Action, to help anyone anywhere who thinks, I want to do this, but I don't know how to, where they come join us and actually stand with me and others on our staff shoulder to shoulder to listen to us, to pattern ourselves. When I first started doing this, I learned from Scott. Then I, I met Mark Harrington and Stephanie Gray, and I, I stood myself right by them on campus so I could hear what they say so I could start modeling it and then of course you find your own apologetic voice or whatever I suppose but you need someone to help you so I would say if you want to do this but don't know how go to createequal.org and join our justice ride if you're a college student high school student or our day of action if you're any age and we will help you by being there with you teaching you how to talk about abortion but then also doing it with you and debriefing afterward so you're not alone it doesn't have to be scary we can do it together Outstanding. All right, Seth, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. We appreciate you. If you Thank you, Jay. You ever have three things you want to talk about, feel free to reach out and we will work you back into the rotation, man. Awesome. Well, it's been a, been an honor. Thank you so much. All right, have a great day, man. Thank you for joining us for Human Things 2.0 Season 2, Episode 1. Uh, as always, if you support or if you like what we're doing, if you like the what we're, we're producing, and we're going to keep going. We've got enough money to keep going right now as far as, as to be able to produce these things. But we want to be able to do this into the future, to keep committing, to see it growing. It is growing. We are, we are seeing uh, great feedback. And we want to get better at what we're doing, which we're committed to doing as well. So we're going to keep getting better. You take care of the – if you help us to produce this, we promise to keep getting better. Send us your feedback. Please give us your support if you like the content that we're producing. and. We are excited about all the things that season two of Human Things is going to bring. Thank you for joining us.